The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when you owe a stand-up criminal overlord some money and you happen to know a taciturn detective that will be anyone's low-priced hitman on the sly? Oh, and that your mother has a decent death insurance policy. Would you add two and two together and arrive at the elementary conclusion of virgin sacrifice? Is this vortex of an equation of suburban Dallas math something that just resonates in your deep-fried chicken-loving soul? Well, let's find out. Because today we are talking about William Friedkin's 2011 film adaptation of Tracy Letts' 1993 play, Killer Joe. So sit back and grab a leg as we take you through the best that the rather niche genre of southern gothic Jacobian throwback dark comedy vengeance cycles has to offer. Brought to you by McConaughey in another movie about tuna, the inconvenient fallouts of casual matricide, gentlemen crime lords, chicken fried fellatio, the other, other, other white meat, and the Texas take on a Jacobian end. And of course, our safe word today is vegans. Anything to add, Benji? I mean... I, I don't know. What am I supposed to say here? What am I even supposed to, like, what, should I say something like, all right, all right, all right, talk about I love these high school girls, I get older, same age, talk about how I was driving to Lincoln before they paid me to. I don't know. I don't know what to say in some McConaughey impersonation that's probably just going to sound like a Clinton impersonation, and then you realize they're just the same fucking voice. I, I'm just... I'm hungry. I'm probably going to get something to eat, like, during the intro. I, I've got some chicken. Do you want anything? Like, white meat, dark meat? Yeah, I'm going to have to go with a leg. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Thanks! Boy! Sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Oh, hi, Mark. Uh, London, hi, you're here again. I am here again. And also, an Oklahoma border Texas accent is not the same thing as an Arkansas accent. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> Suddenly, we're we're experts on how Bill Clinton and Matthew McConaughey talk. Okay, great. You Midwestern. Hey, I, I'm from the South now. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark the South. <laughs> Trademark the South. We've, we've moved on from, from New England. Gonna have to start saying roots instead of routes, you know? God God forbid. Never. Never. <laughs> I'm just saying I've been exposed to the South now. Not that I will complete. I do say y'all a lot, though, so whatever. Oh, shit. You make me laugh, son. <laughs> down Southern native. Oh, look. You go ahead and you start up this podcast or I'm gonna have the boys kick the shit out of you. So anyway, what's up, Benji? <laughs> well, London, you know, last time around when we were talking, I mentioned how I hadn't seen Junior Gershon in anything much else aside from Showgirls. Uh, I also saw her in this movie, Killer Joe. Boy, she deserves some sort of award for this movie. This movie, Killer Joe. There's a lot of great people in this movie. Gina Grishan is among them. We're not talking quite like Clue Ensemble cast perfection, but it's pretty close to that. Almost everyone in this movie is really knocking it out of the park. 
They are. So, where did you first encounter this movie? Well, like the things in my life that I enjoy doing but regret the origin of, you told me about this movie. I did. Because this movie's great and everybody should watch it. Except for maybe my parents. I'm not sure. Because my mother asked, oh, what are we doing next for this particular cast? And would her and my dad like to watch it? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Because it's a great movie. And my parents are adults, so they can see NC-17 rated material. I'm sure, you know, they, they're mature enough to handle it. I just felt weird recommending this movie to my parents. So, you know, this is something you have to find by yourself, you know, and just, it, it shouldn't come from me. If you're, if you're picking up this movie, Mom, uh, caveat emptor, know what I mean? <laughs> Indeed. So... Yeah, and I had this movie showed to me by someone else, so it's just kind of this passed-on film, I guess, in a folkloric way, just handed down from one person to the next. As uh, as all good things are, I feel like this is the positive version of a chain of a chain letter. You know, you're shown it by someone else, and you realize, you know what, I need to show this to other people, not because I fear negative repercussions for for myself, but. I don't want to live in a world where I have not introduced this film to other people. Exactly. So what's what's the worst thing about this film? Or the best thing? Whichever one you feel like you need to start with, with Killer Joe. You know, I, I'm sure that we... I know that we've had some movies, or we're going to have movies, where the best thing and the worst thing are the same thing. It's hard to say. Um, in this one, if I were going to say that if there's a worst thing, it's not really a worst thing, it's just the weakest thing, is the actor who plays Chris... He is not doing a bad job in this movie. It's just that everyone else is doing Ascension-level acting performances in this one, and the guy who plays Chris, is just he's kind of loud. Uh, Neil Hirsch. Which I'm not familiar with much of his other stuff, but I mean, he seems like he seems like a good actor. It's just in this particular role, he doesn't quite seem to be nailing it. When I looked up information about this movie, I found out that the role had been originated by Michael Shannon back in 1993. So I was kind of picturing like a babyface Michael Shannon in this role, and that made a lot of sense <laughs> to me. You see, interestingly enough, William Friedkin. So in preparation for this, I did watch the movie with director's commentary as well. And Freakin was super into Emile Hirsch in this movie. He went on at length about how excited okay. he was by Hirsch's performance. So, to each their own. A absolutely. And I really wasn't thinking too much about that until uh, the third watch through. I watched this movie like three different times just for to get a feel, to compare it to the stage play, and then again for notes. And by the third time, I just thought, yeah, this he's just kind of screaming his lines out every now and then. I mean, he does absolutely the greatest line delivery of fucking fuck piece of suck cake that one could possibly do. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed his performance, but I have to imagine that if you have in mind Michael Shannon, that, yeah, that's a hard thing to compare with because he mm. is such a great character actor. What is the best thing about this movie? Leg. Yes, the ambiguous leg. This is almost a situation where one could say the best thing and the worst thing are the same thing based on how some people have reacted to that scene. <laughs> but now to me, that's what makes this movie just extra special. It's just the the greasy fried chicken cherry on top of a, of a meat pie sandwich. <laughs> that's, that's a fine takeaway. Now, I think that 
The worst thing about this movie, and this is going to be sort of cheating a little bit, I suppose, that it doesn't have as much to do with the contents of the movie itself, but the distribution. The fact that Mm. this movie has not been seen or even heard of by more people. Especially the individuals that like movies like John Wick, Mm -hmm. I think, have a big crossover with people who would like Killer Joe. This movie did not get much of a theatrical release, if at all, because of its NC-17 rating. And that's another thing that Friedkin, the director, spent most of the commentary (laughs) complaining and bitching a little bit about the NC-17 rating, because unknown to us, so we had always, when looking up this film and information on this film, kind of got the sense that Friedkin was more along the lines of, fuck it, I'm going to just do an NC-17. And the way that Verhoeven was like, fuck it, we're doing NC-17. But according to the commentary, he really tried to cut this down. And so we can talk about that later in terms of the ratings boards in particularly American cinema and why they gave him such a hard time with this movie and why it didn't get a bigger distribution in America because of this rating. So that's really unfortunate. And I don't necessarily think this movie warrants an NC-17 rating, so we can talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. The best thing about this movie, there are so many good things about this movie. The cast brings it, the production brings it, Friedkin brings his own sensibility to it. It really feels like a Friedkin movie. But number one thing for me has to be the screenplay itself. This script is so tight and its cadence is so beautiful that and I know you're going to talk about its theatrical background later but watching this movie you can just tell that this was a stage play in its previous incarnation so yeah just listening to the dialogue is such a delight all the way through I agree the great thing to me about the script of this is that it is written by the original playwright Tracy Letts and this is really one of the greatest examples I've seen in recent years of a playwright being able to expand upon his work uh, for a different medium and points to freaking in the studio, what have you, for making sure that Tracy Letts was brought on to work in his own play. Tracy Letts was allowed to really expand on his script, on his uh, original play and add some scenes into this movie uh, that I think really enhance it. I've never seen the play myself. I did read it for this. I just, I can imagine, okay, the whole thing just tra- takes place in the trailer. Cool. But the fact that he was allowed to expand on that and like really get them out in locations that were thematically appropriate to what was going on, just that was beautiful to me. Yes. So this film, lightning summary. And now it's time for the lightning summary. Go! In the Tracy Letts sort of style, it is a bunch of just terrible but super entertaining people outside of Dallas, Texas, and one of them is going to get it into his mind that he can hire a hitman, Killer Joe, to take out his mom for the family for the insurance policy. And as these things often do, shit goes really wrong with this plan, but the core crux of this movie is going to be a son who's trying to bring the family together to kill mom. And they're going to use McConaughey to do it. And they are willing to sacrifice a few things to make that happen. Yeah. So that's the that's the lightning summary. They're, allowed to, they're willing to make a virgin sacrifice, if you will. Yeah, they are. Everybody should always be up and down for 
a good old virgin sacrifice. It's a classic for a reason, you know? Bring the whole family. First, my favorite part of this opening isn't even the Gershon Bush. It, it comes it comes high second, but at first we're just going to get this absolutely black screen and the sound is going to come filtering in. So we're going to get these really sharp sounds of a lighter clicking and then the storm is going to begin and it is absolutely sonically gorgeous and atmospheric and lets you know that we are watching a film by someone from Friedkin's time, really. <laughs> there seems to be a very certain sound sensibility from directors that were doing a lot of work in the 70s. And I can, I can hear that here, right? There's something I do associate Friedkin's films very heavily with sound. And so this really set the tone and let us kind of come into the world on a sound level before we see anything. The visuals in this opening are very minimal. It's just, yeah, blackness, thunder and lightning. We briefly get a shot of that ladder clicking, but that's it. And that's all that we really see until we arrive at the trailer park. And I wonder, is that sound cue in the play at all? Because I could see that working on a stage as well, to have a completely black stage and have sound sort of filtering in first. One could see that it is not in the play. The only sound cues in the play are that there's rain and thunder. Every scene in this play, uh, there is rain and thunder, more so than there is in the film. And also the dog barking. I am not from Texas. I have no idea if it actually rains this much outside of Dallas. It seems surprising for what I associate with a desert landscape, but maybe it rains quite a bit. You know, I have family in Dallas and been down there several times myself. And yeah, it can rain in Dallas. That's not unheard of. It's not as rare as it is, say, like somewhere like L.A. You know, if you go to okay. L.A. and you see it raining, you're like, the fuck is this? But Dallas, it rains. You're like, oh, well, shit. OK. OK, fair. So, yeah, it wasn't a point where I was like, oh, my God, this seems improbable <laughs> that it's raining so much. I just was genuinely curious, does it actually rain this much in Texas? So then we get into the actual core visuals of the movie and we're going to get a little Emile Hirsch and he's walking through the rain, <laughs> dashing more through this pouring down rain. There's a pit bull barking at him, chained poor, up. beautiful pit bull. Shut the fuck up, T-Bone! Except for, apparently, Friedkin also mentioned this dog. So this dog, Friedkin says, was the best trained actor he's yes. ever worked with. I love it when it's a dog that's the best trained actor in a movie. <laughs> apparently, this dog, I can't remember who he belonged to, but he was actually a, a trained acting professional dog that somebody brought to set and this dog could bark on cue oh, that's <laughs> he could beautiful. growl on cue so he was he was well trained <laughs> so that dog was there and he was acting I felt bad for this dog the whole film through because he's yeah just tied up outside of this trailer so at least it's some comfort to know that this dog was really excited to be there because he was yeah, he's a he's a little sag holder or whatever. Well, that's good because that is the other sound cue, like I said, in the movie or in the play. Every time that someone approaches, aside from Joe, the dog is always barking at them. Yeah, so this dog is a some sort of harbinger of <laughs> the family arriving. Knocks, bangs on the door, and then we just get the trailer door opening and frame shot of just Gina Gershon vagina. 
And it is, uh, briefly, there was an interview with Junior Gershon where she said she went through a lot of Merkins to figure out which would be the right one. And apparently, uh, I don't know if Freakin talks about this on his commentary, but apparently Freakin was like, you really, you don't need to worry about that. And she says, no, 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 look, Will, my hair up top is good for this role. However, if I, in real life, had, you know, short blonde hair with feathered tips, that would not be correct and you would want to get me a wig. Well, my hair below the equator is not right for this role. So we need to do something about that. Gina gets it, man. She gets it. She, she does get it. And yeah, we, we've talked before how in my days doing different effects and stuff for films, applying Merkins has been one of them. And so this is something <laughs> that actually goes on behind the scenes a lot more than people realize when vaginas are on screen. Time period or regional appropriate hair styles matter to production. Yeah, but that's interesting that Gina Gershon used a Merkin. Not surprised, but I didn't know that. This was also something that Friedkin was originally worried that an NC-17 rating was impending, and Tracy Letts was the one who told him, Friedkin, don't be afraid of the pussy was apparently the direct quote <laughs> that, that Les Just told him. He's of like, it. no, you gotta, you gotta embrace the pussy. And uh, Friedkin's like, okay, fine, you're right. But also, I think that the ratings board is not going to be super happy about this. And, and they weren't, which, yeah, is unfortunate that the ratings board is uh, afraid of female anatomy. But we get into the trailer. Chris is yelling at her to put some clothes on and why would she answer the door naked? And her response is just, I didn't know who was there, right? Like, I didn't know who you were going to be. And so that's the best defense possible. Like, I answered it naked because I didn't know it was you. It it really (laughs) implies that the rest of the neighborhood is very chill with nudity. Oh, had it been the neighbor, no one would have cared. But I didn't know it was you, like the one prudish guy who ever comes to our door. And this is what's great about this scene is that it is going to set up a bunch of characters and it's going to do it in this roundabout way that somehow captures the essence of who these people are. (laughs) And so the fact that Gina Gershon's character, Sharla, just opens the door in the middle of the night naked from the waist down. That's also fun. She's not completely naked. She actually has on a long sleeve shirt. It's just she has on no pants. And she's completely comfortable with this. There's also a really great little makeup detail in that whoever the makeup artist was had put fingerprint-shaped bruises along her hips. Oh. And so there's a shot where we kind of get half of Gina Gershon's kind of like hip-ass-cheek situation looking around to Chris, who's on the couch, and you can visibly see these sort of fingerprint things on her hips. And so it has a really great Hmm. little sort of setup detail. Then we get Chris introduced through the idea that he's just been kicked out of wherever it is he lives. And we don't know yet who he lives with, only that both Sharla and then Ansel, both in succession, are going to say, what did you do? Did you hit her again? And so we're thinking, okay, domestic abuse situation, lives with a girlfriend, partner, somebody who he keeps hitting. I'm fairly certain that it's his mother who threw him out. I, I kept getting that vibe from... Oh, it's definitely his mother. 
Okay, yeah. We just don't learn that until the next scene. And so that's like oh, the really okay, great I see what you're thing. saying. Yeah, it is vague. You're like kind of confused as to who Adele is. And it turns out Adele is his mother. And that makes it even creepier. Oh, yeah, it totally does. But that's the two things that this scene is going to do. It's going to set up the characters in this roundabout way that kind of holds their essence. And then there are just going to be these little moments throughout the script where you have these well, wait, what? Kind of like mental rewind moments, because in this, they're setting it up almost like it's some sort of girlfriend or wife situation. And so in the next scene, when we learn that the woman people keep asking, oh, did you hit her again, is his mother. You're like, wait a second. I have to reorient my understanding of this dynamic. And we do also get the sense that this child of the parents, I mean, he's an adult now, but the abusive relationship that he seems to actually kind of have with both of his parents, that he somehow does have the higher level of the power dynamic situation with his parents. And so that was kind of cool in a weird way because we often see these narratives of parents abusing their children, particularly in the economically depressed South, but we don't often see adult sons abusing their parents. We don't as often see that narrative. And so Mm -hmm. it was real, but sort of refreshing as much as it's a little hard to say like, yeah, I really liked this domestic violence choice, but I did really like this domestic violence choice. It's engaging. It captivates you and makes you ask, what is going on here, movie? Tell me more. I also am very happy with this scene because this is where we're introduced to Ansel, Chris's dad, played by Thomas Hayden Church. And Thomas Hayden Church in this role is a casting match made in heaven on par with Patrick Stewart playing Professor Xavier. I mean, this is so, so good. Everything that Thomas Hayden Church does here. Yeah, and apparently he also is from this area like McConaughey was. I think he said in interviews that he had some sort of background experience with this area of the world and these types of people. But, mm-hmm. um, so he had the accent. McConaughey is going to have, you know, the accent, just his accent. You're mispronouncing his name. It's McConaughey. Yes. I apologize. I do not have the accent. Church is going to be amazingly <laughs> dumb. Mm-hmm. He's so, he's so sweetly dumb. And Chris is just going to yell at him in terms of, why do you like... Charlotte walk around like that and his response is just it's the middle of the night and he's wearing these long johns (laughs) these dirty dirty long johns and I want to know what the makeup was for his beard because he has the most gloriously patchy beard like overgrown peach fuzz beard of all I don't know how to describe it it's so weird looking but I'm like this is amazing yeah they all of these guys are just inhabiting their characters and it's really great and so Chris demands that his father accompany him to somewhere private because he's got a private matter to discuss and his father does not want to go anywhere right he's like why can't we just stay here and talk and Chris is all because it's private. He's like, well then fucking whisper. I don't want to go out in this rain. I need you to put on some pants. They head out. Chris reveals he owes some people $6,000. Asked for a thousand from his dad. His dad's like, I have never had a thousand dollars in my life. What the hell are you talking about? Can't do that. And they continue the conversation at a strip club. And 
Yep, it's a Dallas Strip Club, all right. Cowboys watching everything and just leering at the women. That's as you do in a strip club. It's also very much a Friedkin strip club. This strip club was one of the more obviously lit scenes. So the cinematographer is going to do a gorgeous job throughout in terms of lighting the scenes. But for the rest of the scenes, it's going to be in a very subtle way where the light just looks kind of raw and natural. There's something really beautiful about the strip club scene because of the just saturation of blue light that's happening here and that the actors are still getting caught. I think a strip club is the one location yeah, you could get away with extreme lighting like this and it would still kind of come off as motivated lighting. It's It definitely pushes the boundary of it, but in a beautiful, very beautiful way. And so, yeah, we get the kind of warm Christmas lights strung up in the background just to create a little <laughs> dimensional shape. But how the people in this club are getting shot are very Friedkin in the fact that they're getting shot in kind of pieces. Not the main actors. The main actors are just going to be sort of center-framed, but the strippers, mm. we're going to get a heel and a leg, or we're going to get these shots up through their shoes, through clear floors, or we're <laughs> going to get kind of like the shoulders. We're getting these pieces, and we're getting them in the contrasted blue light and this felt so much like cruising to me uh one of freaking's earlier films that takes place in mostly gay s&m bars in the meatpacking industry in new york and it's that same blue light it's that same sort of fragments and so there's an interesting sculpting of sexuality that freaking does with his stuff and it was really interesting coming off of showgirls to see how the strip clubs and showgirls are portrayed with all of this very warm lighting, very visible, all the parts in these sort of master shots, and then Friedkin's version of strip clubs that are just darker and more fragmented. So it was really fun to contrast Verhoeven and Friedkin's sexuality here. I think Friedkin's uh, version is a bit more true to life on a strip club of this scale. I think Verhoeven was portraying, uh, you know, a, not a, not the highest end, but a ritzy Las Vegas strip club. I think, you know, as he felt was appropriate, this is outside of Dallas strip club and the way Freakin' does it is very accurate. Yeah, I would say both of them are accurate portrayals. One's not necessarily truer to life or not. They're just, yeah, different types of strip clubs. The most raw form of strip club I've seen in a while, it's, I think, HBO's show The Outsider, where there's a couple of scenes that take place in strip clubs and in the background it's just sort of this small town strip club and so the strippers in the background are so visibly bored to the point of almost being yes. lazy it's so great mm. i love the strippers <laughs> in That's the outsider because they're just yeah, yeah they're <laughs> basically doing the barest movement that they can get away with because they're like i'm not getting paid enough to do any more than this <laughs> and it's yeah it's super fantastic okay so the strip club we do learn that yes adele is the mother and Chris did not hit her. He threw her up against the fridge. And this is, this is a totally a different situation, right? Because he's yeah. been denied. I mean, oh, yeah. I didn't hit her. I threw up against her fridge. If that's the, you know, 
distinguishing. That's the I did not have sex with this woman. <laughs> I did not have sex. With, I did not have sexual intercourse with this woman. I did a whole lot of other things, but didn't have, didn't do like, that. Oh sex. no, no. In this case, like define, define hit, right? I shoved. It's a totally different uh, situation. They got. They had gotten into a fight because he believes that she stole some uh, drugs from him that she sold, and he thinks like it had to be that because her car's working again. There's no other explanation. You know, back and forth a little bit here and there, but then we get the the thrust of the scheme of the movie, which is where Chris explains to his father, "Look, I found out that Mom has a fifty thousand dollar life insurance policy, and Dottie is the beneficiary." Also, I happen to know about a guy who kills people for $20,000. How do you know about all this? Don't worry about how I know about all this. I've, he's got some plans. And the plans he's are got some plans. to hire this guy whose name is just getting thrown around quite freely. He's like, have you ever heard of Killer Joe? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I'm sure Joe really appreciates you just yeah, letting his business be known to all heard of these Killer other people. Joe? Check out his website. It's amazing, man. The testimonials from people are just, you know, great. This one guy, he didn't even know he had asked her to kill her. There's also this really just casual pitch about we should totally kill mom. And Ansel's like, I, I feel you. I'm not saying yes or no because there's a cop car that just pulled up behind us in this frame. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not confirming or denying your plan, but I'm listening. And so they return home. Dottie, the younger sister, is sleepwalking, maybe, has some sort of sleepwalking exchange out in the rain in her soaking white dress. And then when they get back into the trailer, she just turns around and is all, I heard you talking about wanting to kill Mama. I think it's a great idea. And then goes back to her room. And I don't know, is this supposed to be still a continuation of the sleepwalking conversation, or was she actually awake the whole time? What's what's your takeaway here? I think that, I think that she was awake the whole time, because my personal theory on Dottie, and we'll probably expand upon this as we further discuss her, that everyone else seems to think that there's something you know wrong with Dottie's head, that she's off. I personally think that Dottie just is on, is on next level and doesn't give a shit about anything and that she is fine with just walking around saying the weirdest things to try and get a reaction from people and also has no problem whatsoever with very blatantly saying like oh you're gonna kill a mama i think that's a good idea like she has no social tact tact whatsoever no no social skills and does not care to develop any of them so dotty just says what dotty wants to say and they come off really crazy, and the only interpretation that her family can take away from that is, like, uh, she sleep, she sleepwalks, man, and says uh, weird things. That's all I can think okay, of. Okay, so you don't think she ever sleepwalks at all, you just think she sometimes says stuff in general. Yeah, that, that's okay. my own, that's my, uh, my headcanon for Dottie. I do get a sense with Dottie that, yeah, it's a whole bunch of, a couple of things, in terms of perhaps some latent leftover brain damage from when her mom tried to kill her. We'll talk about that. I could see that too. Um, yeah. As well as 
a certain sort of savvy intelligence about the world around her while still being naive, I also get a vague sense of almost mysticism in a weird way yeah, from her. Yeah, there's some of that too. She invades dreams. She invades dreams. She also, later with McConaughey, when the phone is ringing, will just be like, he's like, are you going to answer that because it's your fucking phone? And she's like, it's for you. And you're like, how do you know that, you witch? So it does seem... Yeah, like, there might be something a little mystical about her, but not in any way that's pushed on very hard or confirmed or played up. And I really like that weird semi, yeah, mysticism. But, yeah, she does seem to come into dreams. Because Chris dreams about her, and he seems really freaked out by the fact that he's dreaming about her. Dreaming about her naked. Doing, yeah. Doing some kung fu. That's your sister, down bro. The hall. You live in Texas, not Alabama. What the fuck are you dreaming about your naked sister for, man? I don't There's actually a repeated undercurrent throughout that Chris and Dottie might have kind of a semi-sexualized relationship that's not consummated necessarily, but that there's something a little sexual about their rapport. Hmm. Also, incest is universal. It's not restricted to Alabama. Sorry, Alabama. Sorry, I didn't mean to single Unlike you out the there. the difference between the Arkansas and the Texas accent, incest in Texas <laughs> and Alabama, they are the same thing. You can't well, take that away from me. I ship it. I thought I thought it was strange that Chris was having this dream. I think this is like the fact that he's having this dream now is evidence that Dottie can invade dreams because I feel like he would have this sort of dream after he had agreed to like give Dottie to Joe in the way that they do later on. That's but. true. So there is this kind of hint of her as yeah, this naked sort of being that may resist. There's also some more really cool Friedkin stuff happening with this shot in terms of just, you can see his exorcist sensibilities coming in a little bit. Oh, uh, yeah. Once again, we get these fragments. We get kind of a blurry hand at one point in the frame that's just in shadow. This is before the master shot down the hall. This is just sort of yeah. clips and fragments. And... We get a little bit of almost like, this is not Friedkin, but Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans with the little tiny lizard getting played with. For some reason, that had some super Port of Call oh, vibes. Oh, God, I got to be thinking about Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans now. Which My we God. definitely need to do, by the way. But um, so we also have, when we're looking down the hall, this dollhouse that's perched on top of a dresser and so this hall kind of has stuff in it that is obstructing the path a little bit but the dollhouse overhangs the width of the dresser and so it looks very very precarious and the dollhouse is lit and it's just this really cool production choice to have this imbalance in the actual weighted objects in the scene and it creates a certain sort of anxiety that's Chekhov's unbalanced dollhouse, man. Yeah, except for it's not. It doesn't come back up, but it's uh, <laughs> it does add a certain kind of odd anxiety to the visuals of the scene in a way that I was like, yeah, this is Friedkin making ordinary shit really freaky. <laughs> like, oh. That's what he do. In this dream, and I'll, this leads into the next scene, Dottie is starting to do a, like a little bit of kung fu. And this, I think, is an inter- it can be, it works just like as its own as a filmic 
technique, but it's also an interesting callback to the play that always states like blackouts are never silent. The sound, as soon as the lights go out on stage, the sounds from the next scene have already started. So if lights go out in the next scene that there is a an evangelical uh, evangelical preacher on the television, we're already hearing him as soon as the lights have gone dark. Yeah. So in this case, Dottie in Chris's dream is doing a little kung fu, and then the next scene. She's practicing some kung fu while watching a kung fu movie on the TV, which I actually recognize as East Meets Watts, a kung fu movie from the 1970s. Had a very early role for James Hong. Just, uh, you know, flexing my kung fu knowledge there. Nice. So, yeah, she's she's doing her kung fu in the living room, and we get Joe introduced. The dog does not bark when Joe approaches. No, because even they fear the path or maybe they trust him i don't know i think the pitbulls trust joe more than they trust anyone else in this trailer park or he's like some sort of alpha dog there's a lot of you know possibilities Mm -hmm. but the cool thing about the intro to joe's character is going to be once again that we get joe in fragments Mm -hmm. so we're gonna get those gloves and we're gonna get the sunglasses and the 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 badge the hat the the jackets everything i at first i thought okay how is he not melting in the texas heat in that outfit turns out we see from a data check later on in the movie that it's october so yeah okay that works it still yeah looks really warm especially mm-hmm. since dottie's in these really short shorts and white tank top with no bra so it also adds a strange weight balance to the scene when he gets in there. But Friedkin did talk about the introduction to Joe in Fragments as something that Tracy Letts also was very insistent on, that Letts said in the screenplay that Killer Joe should be introduced in a quote-unquote cubistic way. And so Friedkin describes here these patches as a form of cinematic cubism, where the parts put together sort of more interesting than simply seeing the whole of him collected and presented. And that's kind of a cool way, I think, to think about this as a cinematic cubism where we're just seeing the parts and we extrapolate the whole. And so when we do get the master shot of him, it's at a distance, but we feel like we already sort of know these details of him as a person. I really do like to hear that Freakin is willing to take, you know, input from the writer. He really does come off as a guy, as an old school Hollywood man who still understands that film is a collaborative art, that you can take input from everybody around you and still put your own personal style and stamp on it. So I, I like that about him. Oh, yeah. I guess he, for Bug, and yeah, we'll be talking about Tracy Letts' collaborations with him more later, but... Letts was able to be on the set every day. For this one, Letts was off doing something. I think he was starring in one of Albie's plays in Chicago. And so Friedkin would send him the dailies every nice. single day for his notes. <laughs> and so ah, very Letts cool. was very much a part of this process. Big now, bonus of the digital age, baby. <laughs> yeah. We have the meeting of Dottie and Killer Joe. Killer they, Joe introduces himself as a detective. He's a detective. You know, he's like, I'm looking for Chris. Uh, he's not here. Well, I'm early. Well, Chris is often late, so 
<laughs> I like. I just like that exchange. Tells us a lot about Joe and Chris. Joe, he's a man. He's got his day planned out, man. He gets. He says he's going to be there at ten thirty. He's there ten twenty five. Chris, he might be there at noon. Who knows? Yeah, and Killer Joe just lets himself into the house because she didn't hear him knock, and so once again he he takes liberties with things. But this is where he's supposed to be, so he's just gonna come on in. Asks her to get him some coffee. She seems very curious when she learns he's a detective. Her first kind of go-to is, do you carry a gun? Have you ever shot your gun? Have you ever killed anybody with that gun? Nobody you'd know. Exactly. He's so wonderfully enigmatic in his answers, but also direct at the same time. She asked him, like, what's the funniest thing that's ever happened or what's the craziest thing? And uh, if we shall now go into cinema of cruelty theater, he, he gives her an answer to the funniest thing that ever happened to him or the most ridiculous thing. Yes, and what is that thing? I went into this place and it was completely dark and I just followed the sound of this scream back to the back bedroom. I didn't know what the hell to expect. And we opened the door, and suddenly this huge guy is on top of me, knocks me to the floor, just screaming and clawing at me. And then it turns out no one else is even there. And he wasn't trying to hurt me. He just wanted me to help him. He was in terrible pain. It turns out he had gotten into a fight with his girlfriend. She had been having an affair. So in order to teach her a lesson, that's what he said, teach her a lesson. He doused his genitals with lighter fluid and set them on fire. That poor, miserable bastard set his genitals on fire to teach his girlfriend a lesson. Do you believe that? Guess he showed her. I wonder if she ever got over it. Was he all right? No. No, he was not all right. He set his genitals on fire. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> no, no, he was not all right. He set his genitals on fire. And of course, Dottie's response to this is just, I had an aunt who set herself on fire once. And you're like, wait, oh. that's where you decided to go to? Yeah, okay. <laughs> But not on purpose. She's wearing a long lace dress and she got caught in the furnace. She died before they could put out the fire. Really? They say she's the one in the family I look most like. Her mm. name was Viva. Isn't that a pretty name? She never got married, I don't think. Are you going to kill my mama? So <laughs> <laughs> Dottie. Dottie gets set up oh. great here where oh. she hears this story about genitals on fire. Is he all right? No. No, he was not all right. And then her go-to is just this quaint family story of how she had an aunt who set herself on fire at one point in time and died, and that this is her legacy. This is the one she looks most like, is this one who died horrifically in a fire. And she thinks the name of her aunt was pretty, Viva. So it's like this weird mix. It's, it's it hilarious. Is. And this... 
blase attitude she has about whether or not Joe is going to kill her mother leads into another story that she has about her mother. Like, are you going to kill my mama? Uh, I don't know. Why? Well, my mama tried to kill me once, and we are told this rather terrifying story about how apparently in a fit of jealousy over Dottie's purity or her beauty as a, as a toddler, her mother tried to suffocate her with a pillow, thought that she had done it, didn't and Dottie just says, you know, she thought she was gonna send me back to him, but she didn't. She just made me so I wasn't here for a little while. But I came back. How do you know that happened? Because I remember it. Yeah, and the way she phrases that is another just weird point of kind of semi mysticism. Cause she's just like, she made me not be for a little while, but then I was. Yeah. And I always would be. And you're like, wait a second. You always would be? Are you some sort of immortal? Like, what? There's there's something happening here that we're not getting. I think Dottie is a Highlander or, or something. I, I'm not too sure how it works. But yeah, Dottie is not of humankind. Yes. She's, there's something going on with this girl. But she... And she yeah. even knows when the phone is going to be for Joe. Yeah, and then the phone rings. And he's like, you going to pick that up? And she's like, it's for you. You know, like, this, this is not my my thing that I'm doing right now. I'm just sitting here watching you, waiting for you to pick up the phone. And but, he does, and it and is for him. And it's Chris telling him, like, hey, we're dipshits. We couldn't get out of work. Uh, can you meet us at this pool hall? He's like, okay, fine. Don't you ever change plans on me again. And so we now arrive at a pool hall where we get Joe's terms. Joe explains to them in no uncertain terms that he would kill their mother uh, if they pay him $25,000 in cash up front. Yeah. They don't got it, though. Yeah, you. <laughs> they don't got it. Uh, there's a lovely line where he's like, well, no, you don't understand. See, our mother, she has a, a really big life insurance policy. They normally do. <laughs> they usually do. Yeah. And you're like, well, fair. Yeah. But Joe doesn't give a fuck. It's also really fun to keep remembering that he is a detective. <laughs> so his day job is as a detective slash police officer. And he's just doing this on the side. Yeah. So. I like the idea that he is like, the, I think to me, the idea is that he's a detective. As a detective, he knows what he would be looking for to solve this case if it were to happen. So that's why he tells him, like, you do not tell me, you tell me her habits. I am not going to tell you anything about how I'm going to do it. The less you know, the better. If you implicate me in this, you will die. I want to be very clear on that. You will die if you mention my name. He's also going around this billiard or abandoned deserted mm. billiard space checking really looking in all the closets looking yeah. out the back door so he's just casually checking the environment covering his tracks so he is a, a more ca careful dude than chris and ansel that are just there talking about like killing their mom yeah I love it. Chris at one point says, like, look, we, we really don't want to have to do this, but, you know, it's got to be done. Like, oh, fuck <laughs> off, Chris. <laughs> Come Hands on, man. Inside. No other choices. No other choices to be made here. And they tell him, like, oh, we don't have it. We'll get it to you later on. And Joe says, no exceptions. And then looks outside and Dottie is just dancing in the sunlight, you know, golden aura around her. Just the picture of a beautiful, petite, little virginal beauty. And Joe gets himself an idea. He says, well, we never discussed the possibility of a retainer. Let me know if she's interested. And it 
Chris gets it immediately. Ansel's like, what do you mean by retainer? The fuck do you think he meant? He meant Dottie. What yeah, is... Well, in what? all fairness, Ansel probably didn't even know Dottie was outside because it was yeah. Chris who told him to bring her, so... <laughs> He's like, what? what's he wanting to retain? <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yes. And it's beautiful. They have this quick exchange where they're like, well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to kill mom ourselves? We can either kill him on ourselves, or we can give him Dottie. And Ansel immediately Only just two says, options. "Yeah." Ansel is just immediately, "Well, maybe I'll be good for." Her. <laughs> yeah the the casual morality of this family is so fun. Like it's the so only fun. way to kill my mother is to present my sister as a sex gift for this creepy man in black. Okie dokie. They're going to put a little effort into it. So Dottie's going to swing by the pizza parlor where Sharla works to ask for money to make some dinner because she's thinking about making a casserole. Yeah, there is. A, I just want to point out, Ginger Gershon has a fantastic moment here that when I was reading the script along with this was beautiful. Uh, she has a line. She says something like, oh, relax. That girl at the one hour photo, ain't never, she ain't never seen dick. Not one as big as that. <laughs> she has this like weird, weird laugh. And in the script, it actually says nasty laugh. And <laughs> you you give Gina Gershon the note, make this laugh nasty. Gina delivers. Yeah, Gina always delivers. And so, yeah, she's on the phone with the man she's having an affair with, and she's developed a bunch of pornographic photos of the two of them in a motel together at a one-hour photo and made the Made girl... some, like, teenage girl develop them, apparently. <laughs> Do you remember those days when you had to have your photos developed by strangers? Photo. Oh, man. Yeah, you're like, oh, I hope these work. <laughs> so if you wanted to take any sort of provocative photos, they were generally then developed by some poor 16-year-old kid with an after-school job. That's why us true, per you know... <laughs> amateur pornographers we knew better we got the chemicals going in the bathtub we got this <laughs> it's you used to have to work really hard for set it. up it that is... red light and the clothes hanger above the tub oh man good days you know just the personal touch of amateur pornography has just really been taken away in the digital age i have to say i just get a whole new view into you in high school <laughs> <laughs> high school just don't be ridiculous. I do miss vacation Bible school, though. Is that where you shot the most of your pornographic selfies? Not the most of it, but yeah, so 51%. Gina Gershon Sharla has this collection of pornographic images of her and her illicit affair lover. And, and uh, sits down with Dottie, gives her a pizza that apparently the pizza place screwed up so free pizza hooray and Dottie is saying were you on the phone with your boyfriend Dottie what yeah once again Dottie knows things she yeah. just knows and yeah Charlotte's like I, I don't have a boyfriend like we're, we're not talking about this speaking of boyfriends like what are you gonna make for dinner Dottie had a boyfriend Dottie had a fat boyfriend in the third grade who she never talked to and never exchanged notes with and never held hands but she knew she knew he loved her. It was a yeah, pure love. It was a pure love. He loved her with pure love. Ansel shows up for some beer money. So Charlotte drags Ansel down to the basement of the workplace 
and reveals you have to tell Dottie yeah. that she's going to be the only one there for dinner with Joe tonight. Dottie has bought a brand new uh, fancy dress from a Goodwill. It looks like a Goodwill. Under the assumption that she is having dinner with her family and this Joe guy that she has met before, who's, as she puts it, his eyes hurt. Yeah, such a great like theater line, like this repeated motif of his eyes hurt. But yeah, she goes to the thrifty to mm-hmm. <laughs> buy her dress. Oh, I love going to the thrifty. Request, great but place. I also love when they like get down to the basement. Gina or Sharla, I can't not say Gina for some reason. Either one is fine. Is like you got to tell her because she she can't put two and two together like yeah. you and me and Chris. <laughs> So, yeah, there is this clear assumption from the family that there's something wrong in 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 her head, in Dottie's head. Like, it, it, like as you said, like, it could be residual brain damage from this incident from her childhood. Maybe she there's just some developmental thing going on there. But they do not have respect for Dottie's intelligence at all. It was also just kind of hilarious because she thought that her and Ansel and Chris could put two and two together <laughs> when they clearly can't. So it was just really great that, like, she's like... The, the three of us masterminds, <laughs> we know what's going on, but Dottie doesn't. But Dottie, Dottie knows all. S- except for, yeah, she is taken by surprise when she learns 30 seconds beforehand, once she comes out in her dress, mm-hmm. that it is indeed just going to be her and Joe for dinner. Yes, and she freaks out, doesn't want to have the dress on because it just doesn't feel right. She doesn't feel right in the dress. We get a like escalating argument where Ansel, believing that she needs to be dressed up pretty for Joe for this to all work out, like starts to yell at her and like, no, don't change out of the dress. Chris comes in like, what the fuck is going on? She wants to change. Let her change then. Let Who her cares? change if she wants to. <laughs> you go on, Dottie. You put on anything you want. You're fine. Joe shows up and is you know kind of like, the fuck are you two doing here? Get out. So we have a date. We have, if one can call this that, it's a date, yeah. McConaughey is going to come sauntering in. <sighs> Saunters as only McConaughey can. His little weed flowers with him that <laughs> he's going to offer Dottie. But Dottie's crying in her room, and McConaughey Joe, just yeah. casually is like... You can stay in there as long as you want. It's a it's a nice move on his part. It's like, oh, look, you're going to come out when you want to come out. I'll see if I can come up with a funny story. And he begins just wandering around, turns in the radio, hears the, this old song, Oki from Muskogee. And he's like, Muskogee, Oklahoma. Don't have much fun to say about Oklahoma. Well, I grew up looking at Oklahoma. And he tells this interesting story about how when he was a kid, the border between Texas and Oklahoma was between uh, was in the middle of the Red River. So if you were fishing on the Texas side, you were catching Texas fish. And if you fish on the other side, you caught oaky fish. And then sometime, at some point in his life, they moved the border to the south bank of Texas. So it was all of Oklahoma now, the Red River. And he didn't, he just, that bugged him, as he says, felt like giving up your front porch. And I was a little curious if there was any truth to this. And I looked it up. And this was opening up a weird rabbit hole where not just with the Red River, but apparently... The entire border between Texas and Oklahoma has been in dispute since the days of, of the Louisiana Purchase. And as states, Texas and Oklahoma are kind of catty bitches when it comes to figuring out where the border exactly lands. 
Because borders are important. <laughs> I guess so. Okay, guys, give it a rest. It's just a line in the sand or in the river. Who gives a shit at some point? But no, in, 19, in the 1970s, that's when they moved the uh, border from the middle of the Red River to the south bank of the river uh, to, like, the Texas bank. And when this play was originally written, it was 1993. So going back about 20 years, that's about right for Joe's, like, a childhood memory for Joe. So... Yeah, it tracks. It tracks. Uh, it's yeah, I not, do yeah. like that he casually is just like, I don't know why we did that, but it makes me mad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> but he yeah, doesn't there's... look mad. He doesn't sound mad, but he oh, delivers. Yeah. It's there. It's there. Well, after this this motivating story, uh, Dottie comes back out, now dressed in comfortably in, you know, cut-off jeans. They unveil the tuna casserole, which Joe is just delighted with. He's just so happy about it. He is, it up. and I immediately thought of that Serenity movie, because I had just recently watched that, too. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. I've heard it's insane, though. It is. So the driving force of his character, like, his character's main motivation, his raison d'etre, is to catch this tuna, this particular <laughs> big tuna. Yes! <laughs> so he's a tuna fisherman, and through it's and hilarious that this, like, tuna casserole is presented to him, and he's so excited about it, and I couldn't help but think, like, oh my god, you finally caught your tuna. This like, Texas you, you man it, loves his tuna. <laughs> yeah, Matthew McConaughey, the tuna, super oh. important. Oh, that's great. Well, in the midst of eating, Joe just tells her, you know, Dottie, I'd really like to see that dress. Well, I mean, it wasn't really... I'd really like to see the dress. Not like that, but, you know, it's in, it's implied. No, what's actually kind of interesting is that he goes from talking about it in the abstract of, I would like to see you in it. Why wouldn't you want to put it on for me? To, at some point, he actually switches to an imperative tense where he just says, go put on the dress. Ah, so yes. it becomes an order. And the second it becomes an order, she does do it. So it's sort of when she's given the abstract language of potential choice, she opts not to. But the second that the order is there, then, yeah, she's backed mm. into a little bit of a corner because yeah. this is an adult man who is a police officer that is armed. <laughs> So, yeah, and that's made very clear to us through uh, cutaways. Uh, eventually, she goes to get the dress. He tells her to put it on. She begins to go back to the room to change, and he says, "No, no, 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 put on the dress out here." She takes off, for, you know, main layers of clothing. He says, "Take off your socks." She begins to. He turns around and then states, "Take off your brazier, take off your underwear." And while she is doing this, he's removing first handcuffs from his pocket, which freaked me out the first time I saw this movie. I thought, "What the hell is about to happen here?" Right. And I mean, I wasn't disappointed. I'll say that much. But then takes out his gun, his wallet, his badge, just puts them all on the counter. And you want to kind of cover this. Uh, this interaction that they have by the yeah, counter. I do. Yeah, okay. you do. So, um, yeah, she's going to come out and he's just going to tell her piece by piece, take off your shirts, take off your socks because she gets pretty stripped down, but her socks are still on. And he's like, yeah, that's not going to fly. Like, take off the socks. Have you seen the floors in here, Joe? Let her leave her socks on, man. Come on. But then he's going to make a curious decision which becomes very interesting that when she goes to take off 
her bra and panties to put the dress on, he is going to turn his back to her. And so we get this shot of his face facing the camera and then over the shoulder to her sort of stripping down. And Friedkin did talk about this in the commentary in terms of the choice to turn around being McConaughey's input on the scene. So that wasn't a stage direction or Friedkin's direction. That was mm. something McConaughey thought okay. would make the scene more interesting. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, I don't remember that in the script. So that makes sense. And in a way that it's sort of kind of in a, a showgirl's way as well, makes the audience complicit because he's not actually watching, but we probably are. <laughs> and it's this weird form of Southern gentleman where he's going to turn around to give her semi-privacy, even though he's actually violating every sort of private thing she has right now. So it's this facade of mm -hmm. gentlemanish ways. My read on it also has always been this type of pleasure delay and denial like he's almost playing with the boundaries for himself in terms of what he gets to see and when he sort of wants to delay this moment a little bit um edging a bit if you will yeah i found it really interesting to dissect his sexuality in this in terms of what seems to get him off because this scene is going to be very different than the scene with Sharla later in the chicken leg. Like, they're very different types of women. It's a very different type mm. of sexual interaction. Mm -hmm. Except for, at its core, what's going to happen is a sense of absolute control and power with a little bit of humiliation. And so that seems to be Joe's sweet spot in terms of what he's into and what gets him off. So it's not a that he just A little bit of humiliation? Well, but later it's a lot of humiliation. Okay, right oh, here okay, it's right, a okay. little bit of humiliation. I was going right? to say, so, like, you're measuring that in a weird way. Well, you can always get more humiliation <laughs> in a scene, but <laughs> this one's just a tinge because there's something mm. about that kind of corruption of naivete here. But, yeah, he's going to take down his pants, start stroking himself, have her help, and he asks her what it feels like. And her response is, I don't remember, which is sort of a curious line. She's mm -hmm. got a lot of curious lines here in yeah. terms of the temporal space, in terms of whether or not this is something that has happened to her before or not, because this there's is happening moment, right now. There's a moment when she's stripped down right before she he's he asks her to come over to him where she's just very quietly says, babies. Yeah. And it's like, like the fuck? What? <laughs> what are we... Does she, I, I mean, I think she's clairvoyant. I think she sees the future. She yes. Know, I mean... The mysticism. You don't really need much mysticism to know that babies might result from this the night in this trailer, so That's true, knows? but the fact that it's going to, That's once true, again, yeah. sort of hints at this mysticism that she might see potential outcomes of things. But, yeah, so he's going to ask her what it feels like. Her response, I don't remember. And then... He'll ask, how old are you now? Mm -hmm. And is, uh... she replies, 12. And he replies, me too. And then he also says, and your boyfriend. And she says, Marshall. And so this is a weird temporal collapse that's happening here in terms of she seems to be regressing in a certain fashion to the time when she was 12 and apparently had the boyfriend, Marshall. These 
ages and lines don't quite match up exactly because Marshall was her boyfriend in the fifth grade, which is more generally 10, 11. 12 is generally sixth grade. So it seemed a little weird that that kind of match up. So it's ambiguous to the viewer, for the most part, whether or not she's claiming to be 12 right now, if she's regressing to some sort of 12-year-old age, if she's not 12 right now in the scene, how old is she? Friedkin's commentary was that this is a regression moment and that she is 21 and she's remembering being 12 with her boyfriend, Marshall. Mm-hmm. I always got the sense that, yeah, she was regressing to a certain moment that she wasn't necessarily 12 in that moment in you know real time. Right. But I also did not get that she was the actual actress's age of 21. I kind of saw her as being somewhere in between there with the way that they sort of portray her as still living at home, still being this kind of little sister that's protected, still being a virginal, naive chick in this environment. I had always clocked her being somewhere in the ages of 14 to 18, but... Yeah, what's interesting is that in the play, in this scene... Uh, before this starts to happen, Joe asks her, how old are you? And she replies, 20. And that's how old her character is listed in the show notes as 20 years old. Joe is in his early 30s, so forth and so on. Uh, And it was interesting to me that that bit of information was removed. Most of the times that the lines are removed or altered in the play, it's either really inconsequential variations in the dialogue, you know, like, he's a son of a bitch, I could have told you that, becomes... I could have told you that he's a son of a bitch. It's just little stuff like that. And if lines are removed, it's because instead of saying, Dottie, go to your room, they're now saying, let's go to a strip club. But very rarely, uh, really, this is the only instance I can think of where a vital piece of personal information about one of our characters is removed. And that was very interesting to me because... Unless you're told that she's 20 years old, yeah, you can't really nail down Dottie's age. And she could be, like, anywhere from 15, 16, 17. Like, she could, this could be Ebophilia territory very easily, depending on how you interpret her age. Yeah, and I do kind of like the ambiguity there, since diegetically in the movie, this is the first time, presumably, Killer Joe has bothered to ask about her age at all. And so if this is the only information he's working off of, along with just sort of visual cues and contextual cues, we kind of get the sense that he doesn't really give a fuck how old no. she actually is, one really, way or he another. He gives a fuck that she's a virgin, because earlier in this scene, as they're sitting down to dinner, Dottie just very quietly says, I'm a virgin. And Joe replies with, I know. I know. Yeah. So he's already figured that much out, but her age, yeah, he doesn't really seem to care too much about. Yeah, and so since he has that dismissal, the movie has that dismissal, it also leaves a little bit of a morality bracket open for Joe in terms of where we want to put her age, I guess, in terms of the narrative. It makes more sense to me that she would be underage since he is willing to use her as a retainer for a service. It seems like that would make more sense that he is using this situation to capitalize on a desire that he doesn't have a lot of free access to. 
And I'd have to imagine he could go out and fuck any early 20-something-year-old girl that he wanted to, either by consent or by force. But having a family be complicit in him just hanging around the trailer and fucking their 14-year-old daughter or whatever, that's a much more specific situation mm-hmm. that you need a little leverage for. Perhaps right. like being the contract killer of their mother. So. There's, yeah, definitely a position of power that you get out of that that you would not normally get out of just you know, picking up a, a horny 20-something at a bar. So I find it much more interesting for the psyche of his character as well as the psyche of the other characters in the scene and their complicity if she is an underage character. Like, something actually gets lost for me a little bit if mm-hmm. she is just 21, because then it's like, well, why is she in this house still anyway? If she wanted to get away, she legally is able to do so. Not get away from Joe, but I mean just get away from her family in the first place. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit more of a trapped narrative if she is legally still obligated to be at home. Yeah, there are a few lines from characters earlier in the film that I think Ansel says, like, I think that she's still... Chris says, what, a virgin? Yeah. Man! And they seemed surprised by this. So that you could get some implication from those lines that Dottie is of an age that even to her family, girl, why aren't you fucking yet? What's your problem? But... From the major the majority of this of of this scene of everything else that we get throughout the movie, she, yeah, her it, she doesn't come off as someone that's of the age of consent at all. Yeah, and see, I also liked that the family might be skeezy enough to be surprised that she was still a virgin at like fifteen. Yeah. So I just I <laughs> what's like, she doing wrong? Gosh. Yeah, I just I really like fucked up narratives, and yeah, that's that's how you make it even more fucked up. This this seems like that family, so yeah. How does this scene end, London? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to. They they fuck. That's <laughs> they fuck more or less. Yeah, we don't that really happens. see it, but it's heavily implied that they fucking. And later, when people come crashing back into the scene in the house, McConaughey is gonna come out of Dottie's bedroom just totally naked. Yeah, which that had to be McConaughey's request right there. McConaughey does get naked a lot. It's great. You know, if I looked like Matthew McConaughey, I would try to be shirtless as often as possible. That's fair. Yeah. But what's interesting in the play is that the ending of this scene of where it's heavily implied they're about to have sex, that's end of act one and intermission starts. So theoretically, if you see this play live, this is where you could decide, okay, so do I want to stick around and see where they go from here? Yes, Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, I do. And then after this, we get a scene that is wholly original to the movie, where Chris is uh, at a horse betting facility, loses $1,000, which apparently he had uh, on a horse race, goes outside and is confronted by two, I would say, rather polite uh, biker thugs. Who like just inform him like you asked for a week? It's been three weeks. Uh, this is where we're at now. Chris basically does a you know look a blimp and <laughs> runs off. And I find it funny that we now get a chase scene. The chase scene is added to the movie, being directed by the guy who directed the fam- the most famous chase scene of all time. I just kind of found that an interesting coincidence. In the French Connection. Yes, Chris the French. Is, yeah. 
Yes. Not make that connection. Yeah. It, the, to, for those of you who don't know, it's like this amazing scene where Gene Hackman is chasing down a would-be assassin, and they're in Manhattan, and he is chasing this guy on an L train, but he himself is in a car, so he is racing through the streets of New York, nearly killing pedestrians, knocking trash cans out of his way. It's it's an awesome scene. This is fun. I wouldn't call it as the same thing as that chase scene, but it's still hilarious because Chris is basically darting off any direction he can, trying to get away from these motorcycles, and then they finally corner him in a empty lot, take out his legs, and that's where we meet Digger Soames. Digger, he's delightful. He's stroking to the east, and stroking to the west, and stroking to the woman that I know best. I say that because that's the song that we get for his introduction, and it's glorious. He's really polite. He, he it, is so polite. It's so great because he just starts this this funny like dialogue with Chris, like, "Hey, you uh, didn't see you at my birthday party? Oh, sorry, Mister Soames. I'm sorry I missed your birthday. Hell, son, I'm not sorry you missed my birthday. I'm sorry you missed the party. <laughs> All right, I tell you what, man, we had a different I am gonna kill you though. Yeah, that's, it's like it continues on and on, and Chris gets this look in his face, like, "Man, Digger, like he's he's so nice right now. I might be getting off the hook here. This is great, boy. I tell you what, you always made me laugh." <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Well, anyway, I'm going to have the boys beat the shit out of you right now. If you don't give me my money, I'm going to bury you in a 10-foot coffin. And then just leaves. Well, tell Amy you asked better. Tell Amy you asked. <laughs> it's just such a polite thing to do. Like, I'll let my wife know you asked about her. All right. See you around. Boys, go to town. And like one of the thugs before the beating starts, he's not mad. He's just disappointing Chris. And he says, he really likes you, you know? <laughs> and then they start to beat the shit out of him. And this is like the violence where we are not allowed to look away from it. We have to like go hard in on Chris, like just getting bloodied up like you would not believe while stroking plays on the soundtrack. And it was clear that the makeup here just kind of flung blood across his face. There's no buildup. This is one stage makeup where they begin to beat up on him and his entire face is bloody immediately. Yeah, there's no genesis for this makeup. You're trying to trace back the root of this blood. There aren't necessarily <laughs> cuts. There's just blood everywhere. And he eventually makes it back to Ansel and Charlotte's trailer and comes crashing in. This is where McConaughey comes out naked after Dottie, who's mm -hmm. trying to wipe down his face. But... McConaughey's just like, oh, he just took a beating. He's fine. Like, everybody back to bed. And so yep. they just leave Chris on the floor. It's fine. And we later have this whole sequence of events where Chris is maybe having second thoughts about having McConaughey kill his mom, mostly just because he does not like the sight of naked McConaughey doing his sister. Yeah, I think he says, like, you're fucking my sister. My mother's still healthy as ever. And... Yeah, McConaughey tells him, like, look, man, you want me gone, say the word, and I'm gone. No problem. But Chris is like, nah, fuck it, do it. Uh, there's a prolonged car ride, like, where we get the scene of McConaughey leaving the police station and Chris meeting him right outside the police station to talk about the murder deal to him, which you would hope, like, dude, Chris, wait till you get to the car, bro. There's still cops around here. Yeah, but him be like, it's off. It was interesting seeing McConaughey or Killer Joe go to his police locker and take out his stuff. This sort of visual confirmation that, no, he really is a police detective. Yeah. <laughs> this 
isn't some sort of ruse that he has going on. This this is his day job. The fact that he is so blasé about Chris talking about this possible hit job to him in front of the police station, I don't know, that almost seems to imply to me that Joe understands how corrupt all the other cops are, that they just don't even give a shit either. And it tracks because yeah. Joe's like, get in the car, they go to a barbecue joint, and Joe opens his trunk, and the mother's body is already in the back of his car that's been parked at the police station for who knows what part of the day. So Joe does not give a fuck. No. One thing I wanted to ask you about really quick uh, for Chris in these scenes, like, what do you think of his of the makeup that they did for him for his bruises? Because I know that you have a lot of work. You've done a lot of work with, uh, you know, bruise makeup and injury makeup in the past. Yes. And I do not want to unduly critique other people's work because there are a whole lot of different factors that go in that can make the best intentions or some really skilled people come across on film look not the way that they initially intended. And I think that's actually what's happening here yeah, with Chris's give bruising. The, give him the benefit is, of the doubt. Something went wrong, we'll it's say. Very, it's very heavy. It's very purple. There's not a lot of variation. And this can get into the production stuff later. What I think is actually going on here is that this was a lot of people's first digital film that they were mm. working on here. This is true. And this was a very early digital film. I don't know if you found whether it was the first Alexa cam or not. But it was uh, It was one of the earliest ones. The very first one was uh, the Roland Emmerich film uh, Anonymous. Uh, that started production earlier in the year. This began production in November of 2010, uh, making it one of like a first, the first of a handful of films that would be starting okay. to use the Alexa camera that's used to this day. So they did not have a lot of prior experience with digital. And what it looks like is that these bruises were done possibly for a film camera that's going to pick up less detail and light in a very different way than Mm -hmm. the digital camera does. And so that was kind of the bane of existence for a lot of special effects artists (laughs) when not only did things switch to digital and there had to be sort of a relearning period on how to shade and color things for the digital camera, but when movies that were already made started getting Blu-ray high-definition updates... Special effects got raked over some coals there because when you are doing things for early cameras, you really need to push hard on a lot of different types of stuff so that it appears on camera. And then when you add details back in and you realize those details look, you know, you see the seams of prosthetics or you don't have the minuscule variation that one would want to see in high def. Usually it's because, like, if they had done that for a regular camera, it would have looked terrible. So it's sort of like with stage plays, right? When you do stage makeup, it's got to be really heavy because people need to see it from the back. And then if you were to film that close up with a high-def camera, that's going to look really, really heavy. But if all you're doing is for the stage, if you do high-def makeup for a stage production, nobody's going to see it. (laughs) So it's that kind of weird balance. And yeah, his bruising is is definitely a little heavy-handed purple here, but I don't think that's necessarily the fault of the makeup people. I think they were just doing it for a different medium than it ended up turning out on screen. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, that makes sense. He, yeah, it, it was a little distracting. Yeah, because it is more or less, it just looked like a, a large purple blob on his face that was smeared very evenly that did yeah, that looked a little strange, so I wanted to I ask think about they that. also color corrected a little bit because I know Friedkin was really excited that with the Alexa cam you could sculpt with light in mm -hmm. post production. He yes. was really excited about that. And that happens in Clover Field as well. I'm, this is one of the, the blood work that sticks out the most to me in my mind, is that the blood in Clover Field is very, very purple. It's mm -hmm. not even red anymore. It's just purple. <laughs> and what's happening there, of course, is that somebody in production must have forgotten to inform the effects department, hey, we're going to slap a blue filter on this film Ooh, like crazy. So you yeah. might want to make the blood a little bit more yellow or something to, <sighs> to compensate. But no, they, they probably had red blood on screen or on set and then in post yeah it's just purple so it looks very alien so but there were the best of intentions here the best of intentions different change up in the format will always uh, it can mess make it mess with the best of intentions it will happen but yeah. at any rate but the he's mother up. yes uh, he's bruised up mom's in the trunk they put her into a car joe pours some booze on her blows smoke in her face cuts a line a uh, gas line in the car lights some gas that's on the ground with his lighter we hear that click sound again very distinctly as we heard it in the beginning they drive away and chris watches in horror as his mother's car blows up and she is burned alive inside i was kind of confused like why joe would even bother putting the booze on her face and the cigarette smoke on her if she's going to be incinerated to that degree those factors wouldn't matter but attention to detail attention to detail perhaps yes we cut to a restaurant Dottie is watching a cartoon like kind of looney tunes-esque roadrunner adjacent style cartoon on the tv chris is watching it and he can't not see explosions on the on the screen he turns them off we get you know word that yeah her mom was incinerated they didn't even bother with an autopsy because there wasn't much left to work with we go to a law office where there the weird difference between the play and the and the movie is that the law office the lawyer and the play who we never see we're just here talking st off stage is Kilpatrick and in the movie it's Phil Patrick so just an odd little change to me maybe there was a naming issue there who knows yeah, I yeah. don't know. Get an awesome scene where uh, uh, Charlotte completely fucks up Ansel's one good suit jacket that I assume like he's had for decades at this point in his life. And oh, just see, pulled... I assume that they probably went to the thrifty and picked up a suit jacket. <laughs> I could see that, too. Yeah, they've... And that... there's this little thread that's annoying Ansel because it's sticking up, and he keeps looking at it. So Charlotte's just like, oh, fuck it, and she pulls on it. And the entire sleeve just comes off. Like the sleeve was literally hanging by a thread here, and Sharla stole that thread away. And so now Ansel has the suit with, a, with a, a sleeve that is just hanging down to his elbow now. And that was a really well-done production moment, because somebody had to make that trick sleeve. Right? Yeah, and how do you rig that? That's look... difficult, yeah. And so it's just a pull thread, but it does look very well put together mm -hmm. before this thread pulls. So, yeah, they did a really nice job there. I do think it's very interesting that they decided to 
kill the mother off screen, that she's already dead. So we've mm. been building to this narrative of, is Joe going to kill the mother? How is he going to do it? When's he going to do it? And then he just does it for yeah. us off screen to really highlight, this is a story about these people. We technically right? don't even know if Joe did it or not, or if it was done for him by somebody. It's really left up in the air. Uh, in the play, the the reveal that the mother is already dead is that there's a very long scene where it's basically just Chris like doing that long speech he has. It's in the in the movie it's broken up a bit. In the play it's just one long continuous speech where he's like, "I don't really like this. I don't feel right about this. I don't feel like right about this happened to Dottie. I want to try to make a rabbit farm and blah blah blah. I don't like you. Uh, I don't. I don't want to really want to play this guy. I don't care anymore." And then after he's done talking, he notices that there is a trash bag next to the door. And he starts to look in it, and Joe says, no, don't open that. Do you want to help me get her into the car? <laughs> so, like, the whole scene, he's been, like, leading up to this. And it's, like, thematically about the same as the movie, where the entire time he's telling Joe, I don't want you to do this, and in the backseat of the car is the thing that Joe has done. Yeah. Or, or that so, someone yeah, else has done for Joe. Who knows? We, I like the ambiguity there. Chris and Dottie... Uh, Chris, Chris is beginning to, like, catch on that Dottie is almost all-knowing because he's like... I don't have to explain to you what's going on, right? No? Okay, you know what's happening here. I'm sorry it happened this way. I, if it was anything different, I would have done things differently. No, you wouldn't. Or yeah. something like that. Dottie just... just oh, I love Dottie. Just does Dottie not knows. give a shit. She knows things. Dottie knows. Dottie don't give a shit. Parents come back by. They take Chris out to an alley. Ansel looks like he's about to just beat down on Chris. And we get the twist that Dottie is not the beneficiary of this fifty thousand dollars or hundred thousand dollars i don't know i think charlotte said a hundred thousand dollars at some point i'm a little confused by that whatever you know who knows there was a great moment that charlotte says a hundred thousand dollars and we get a cutaway shot of Dottie, who looks at charlotte when charlotte says a hundred thousand dollars and like we're meant to get that Dottie notice notices what charlotte said even though no one else has yet yeah Dottie knows. Dottie and fucking knows, man. So Rex instead, Adele's most recent lover boyfriend, is the beneficiary of this money, and, as we learn. And I love this moment. Yeah, Ansel's like, who told you about the life insurance policy? Rex. Who told you about Killer Joe? Rex. Oh, shit. Yeah, Chris realizes that Rex set him up to hire the Killer Joe to kill Adele for that insurance money, so he's been played by uh, Rex. This is also where we get Chris's line, fucking fuck piece of suck cake. Chris has feelings. Yes, he has feelings. At one point, he just like literally just, yeah, like they were like, do you want to ride to the funeral? And he just like screams, I'll think of something, you guys go on ahead. It's like, we gotta get mom in the ground. This is like, like what I mean by, like, sometimes uh, the actor doing this, it just, he's loud. And that's his thing at times to me. But that's, it's a very minor nitpick on his performance. Everything else is very good. Yeah, I feel like it works for the character for me. I found Chris kind of endearing. And so they go and they just have this gothic quick funeral that nobody really cares about. Nope. But they also feel kind of weird about. We get, we're told not even Rex didn't even show up to the funeral. <laughs> no one yeah, gives a Yeah, we damn. don't see Rex at all. And then we get to the culminating scene, our yes. Jacobian end. We get a brief thing where, where Joe pulls over Rex. We're not told why or what happens. Doesn't matter. But then, yes, we get to that Jacobian end 
And my God, what an ending it is. Set us up here. What, what do we get here? Do we get some K for IC? Yes, Sharla brings in a bucket of chicken from the K for IC. <laughs> And I was like, is this some sort of quaint way of saying KFC? Like, this is the, the local way? But no, apparently it's just to distinguish it from KFC. This is a different type of chicken. They actually let uh, Gina Gershon pick the chicken for this scene. Oh, yes, yes and they did. And she picked Church's chicken. <laughs> oh, Original oh, flavor, because oh. it apparently had the firmest consistency. You know, yeah, that makes sense. Well and done. she, yeah, she she tried a bunch of chicken, and they they let her choose, and she chose Church's chicken, and they're calling it the Cray Fricey. Fair enough. And yes. So they asked, funerals make people hungry, and yeah. so she's passing out the chicken. And she asked Joe if he wants uh, any chicken, if he wants white meat or dark meat, dark meat. And his response is just a leg. And I swear to God, there's thunder and lightning behind him when he says leg. <laughs> And he has her put it on the table, and the camera gives us this, like, close-up insert shot of the chicken leg on a paper towel yep. on the countertop. <laughs> Some ominous setup. Joe, Joe wasn't very hungry. He just kind of wanted a little snack. He just wanted the one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we have this slow, kind of creeping building reveal as Joe is asking Charlotte questions on, mm -hmm. I noticed you said $100,000. I thought you said fifty. Like, how do you know these things? Turns out how she knows them is that dude that she's been fucking and developing pictures of in the back of the one hour photo is Rex. She is Rex's lover. And how does Joe know this? Well, because he takes out some photos, shows them to Charlotte and asks her very plain, very simple, very direct. Whose dick is that? Is that your husband's dick? Ansel, is that your dick? No. no. How about that one? Look closely. You may have been drunk. Is that your dick? No. Because no. Joe's like, yeah, yeah, it was, honey. Like, you were drunk. <laughs> but nope. And poor Ansel. Yeah, Ansel's oh. just realizing, like, I've been fucked over from every angle here. I mean, Charlotte calls Joe a son of a bitch and a motherfucker, and he gets violence, starts to choke her. As she screams out, Ansel, help me, and Joe just says, I don't think Ansel is inclined to help you at this moment. Are you, Ansel? No. <laughs> so, Ansel's great. And the way Killer Joe here is going to enact vengeance on Sharla is going to be the most talked about, kind of known part of the movie the chicken leg oh blowjob scene. Oh, yes. The chicken leg blowjob scene. When, when I mentioned this movie briefly last time around, uh, as th that's the only thing I can remember about this movie at first, the chicken leg blowjob, because this sticks with you in such a big way. Uh, London, how, how do we set this up? The, getting like The chicken leg blowjob is one thing, but life is a journey, not a destination. How do we get to the chicken leg blowjob here? Let's see it. McConaughey is going to saunter over to the middle of the kitchen with this little chicken leg in his hands, and he's going to position it right in front of his genitals. He has already punched Sharla in the nose, and much like the makeup we saw with Chris's beatdown earlier, he punches Sharla, and her face is instantly completely bloody. 
Yeah, it's not coming from the nose. It's coming from, like, above her nose to just yeah. cover the entire thing. It's interesting. She falls to the ground, and go ahead. I'm trying to write, is there some sort of lead-in quote that he, he says? Sa- he says, it looks like you need a new boyfriend. I'll oh, be yeah. your boyfriend for a little while. And then that's when he picks up the chicken leg, waves it at her, and says, look at this. Suck this. And, and she um, does. And she does a really good job. Yeah, this is why I said Gina Gershon deserves some sort of an award for this, because this is, 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 it's insane what happens here. And there is something, yeah, that just captivates people's minds about this moment, because in the Q&A session at one of the festivals, one of the special features on the DVD is this Q&A, and pretty much everyone in the audience just wanted to ask just question after question about this chicken blowjob scene. <laughs> like, they had no other questions. They only wanted to talk about this. <laughs> and it's bizarre because it's not like we've never seen fellatio in a movie. It's not like we've ever never seen forced fellatio in a movie, but it's something about the fact that this is a chicken leg that just blows people's minds, mine included. I don't know what it is, that it's just bizarre enough. Yeah. It's just avant-garde enough that you're like, what the fuck am I watching? And she is dead, like, just going for this, like, the chicken leg blowjob, and this whole action is... And it is an opportunity for Joe to explain, okay, I was hired to do something. I did it. I was supposed to get paid. I can't be paid now because of this screw-up. So I have a retainer. I'm going to take my retainer. Your son doesn't want me to take the retainer, so you will not let him take the retainer or I will slaughter all of you. That's the, the, the thrust of you know, the exposition that he's giving us here. What's fascinating to me about the way McConaughey is doing this is that in the uh, play... This is more or less, you know, the exact same speech. Like I said, sometimes words are flipped and phrasing is a little differently, but it's the same thing. But there's nothing in the stage directions of the play that indicates that Joe is achieving some sort of climax from this. But McConaughey plays it like that chicken leg blowjob is a real blowjob. Fuck yeah. As he's going, he's saying like, now I have performed a service for this family. Oh, that's very good. And I deserve compensation for... (laughs) Yeah, he's going to get there. And because he gets off on power, control, and humiliation, this makes perfect sense as a choice to me that, once again, that is what he's into. That's what's going to get him off. And so, yeah, that all tracks. And there's something really great and perverse about him achieving some sort of fulfillment or climax out of this vengeance moment of chicken fellation. There's also something really impressive about the fact that this chicken leg stays pretty much intact. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like, po- even the skin on it mostly stays there, so... Gina doesn't graze the teeth. Props. Props. Just, yeah. yeah, like thinking of how just gross that must feel. God. <laughs> to like just have, because at some point she's like deep throating this chicken leg. Yeah. And that's just like what that must feel like in your mouth is super disturbing on a texture level. This is, since it's just a quick production note, we'll address it here. 
Gina Gershon initially, when the stage play was first put on and produced in the 90s, had been approached by Tracy Lutz and offered the role of Sharla for the first initial run of the stage play. Gershon really loved the character, but she got to the scene and has talked in interviews about how she just there was something about the scene that scared her that freaked her out a little bit and also kind of disgusted her and she couldn't imagine herself doing it eight times a week she's like right. i she's like i don't think i could do this repeatedly i could maybe do it once i don't want to do it a whole bunch of times <laughs> night after night and, and the matinee yeah and then that haunted her for a really long time because she has almost always accepted roles that freak her out. Very little freaks her out by her mm. own admission. And she really likes going places that push her. And so it had bothered her for years that there was this role that she had turned down because she'd been a little bit scared of it. And so when they decided to do this movie, Let's brought up the fact when they were trying to cast Sharla, hey, I've always wanted Gina Gershon in this role. And maybe she will do it if it's just the once. And so they approached her again and she's like, fuck yeah, <laughs> like, let's do this. Let's get over whatever weird fear of the chicken leg I seem to have. And they did not in the Q&A sessions when they kind of asked like, hey, how did you prepare for this? Did you guys talk about it? Turns out. No, no one treated this scene any different than the rest of the scenes with any more weight or preparation that they did this in two takes. Um, we'll talk about Friedkin's kind of like take limit later with all of his things. Mm -hmm. But that, yeah, they just got in there. They did it. Showed up on set like she's ready to go. And Friedkin actually didn't even see the salacious part of this. He's like, she's not actually doing anything this was his words was like she's not actually doing anything sexual she's sucking on a chicken leg and you're like yeah it is sexual though it, um... <laughs> <laughs> it is though it is it, yeah it's not a sex organ but it's a sex organ come on yeah this come is on, Billy. still i would say classified as a variation of sexual assault even though there's no genitals involved yeah. but yeah no they they just fucking went for it and it was it was kind of whatever but people do yeah there is something animalistically fascinating for viewers about this scene myself I can included dig it. yeah yeah no it was fat like the first time i saw this movie i was blown away by it pardon the pun actually don't pardon the pun there's no pardon for that pun that's terrible you know what you got into here come on i do i, I know how terrible you are it's fine yeah. keep going come on, come on. yeah the escalation that arrives to this it is much like a bug but in that play as well there is this continuous escalation of absurdity and horror uh, that comes about throughout the play and this is like yeah to me you think that this is as ridiculous as the whole story is going to get but we're not there yet this is definitely the most memorable scene to many people but to me this is not the most ridiculous over the top moment in the movie just yet and also, once again, to kind of compare it to Showgirls a little bit, it feels it very different in some ways than the escalation to sexual assault in Showgirls in the way that we're most people when they're watching Showgirls don't fully realize the kind of movie they're watching until mm -hmm. that happens. With Killer Joe, it's such a 
tight script and everything came together so well that you know exactly what kind of movie you're watching the whole way through. So even though there's this moment of my brain would not have previously thought of the possibility of filleting a chicken leg, when it happens, you're like, nah, this is the movie I'm watching, though. Like, it makes yeah. total sense. If I were going to further compare, like, Showgirls and and this movie and compare, like, the two most outrageous things to most people about them, like, in Showgirls being a scene of sexual assault and here being this scene itself kind of of sexual assault, in Killer Joe, we get some lead up. Joe is a killer. He does really fucked up things. So when we get to this, we haven't seen him do this fucked up thing yet, but we're still like, yeah, yeah, this is within Joe. This is something Joe would do. Sure. I think the assault scene in Showgirls is a little bit more shocking to people because we don't know the character of Andrew Carver. We don't really know what he's all about, aside from the fact that he's a creep. Now, you can still say it works because Showgirls being a story of, you know, the horrible shit that happens in that world of entertainment, we know that horrible things happen, so it shouldn't be that shocking to us, and yet there it is. Uh, but with this, the character we understand in Killer Joe is someone who is capable of doing something so crazy like this. And there's also this sense of pure id in this scene where there's something about this scene that's just fucking fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's just so crazy. Like, it's just embracing its tone, and it's just going for it. To the point where, like, Killer Joe, the shit that comes out of his mouth, including one of the best weird intimidation lines of, I will cut off your face and wear it over my own. <laughs> like, uh. whoa. And then, like, later, like, a few beats later, like, do you want me to wear your face? You know, like, <laughs> like I am serious here. But, like, the way that he just, just delivers it, oh. pure, straight, like, you believe him that this might be, yeah, she can suck on this chicken leg or he might wear her face. Either of these are going to be acceptable compromises for Killer Joe in this moment. Oh, and, man. Uh, it's it's so fucking great. So... Basically, he has done all this to explain, I am going to keep my retainer, and if you do not help me, you're all going to die. Or I will sl- I He literally says, like, I will slaughter you all! Do you believe I would do that? And you're like, yeah, we believe it, yeah, buddy. Yeah, we, we believe it. We, that, that clocks, man. We, Your uh, name's Killer Joe. Like, it's built into the namesake. We get it. Yeah, you didn't really... I think we would have believed you had you not done the, the thing with the chicken leg, but... Neither here nor there. Uh, he tells he tells Charlotte, like, okay, then, great. Hop on up and set the table for dinner. He talks to Ansel, and there's a hilarious bit where he's, uh, Ansel asks him, like, where'd you get the pictures? Oh, that's hardly important. Uh, cheer up, though. It could be worse. All, all she did was try to steal money from you and suck another man's cock. Could be worse. How? Huh. No? Now I guess that is about as bad as it gets. I feel like there's tons of worse things that could happen, but, you know, whatever. So they're going to have this great, weird little dinner. Mm-hmm. Chris is going to come, and everybody's acting oddly pleasant. Dottie comes out of her room from where she was taking a nap, and mm-hmm. they're all just going to have some chicken and Dottie says potatoes. grace. It's, it's adorable. Yeah, we're going to say grace around a table. 
I mean, as long as you're seeking absolution, right? Isn't that how that works? Like, I can, you ask to be forgiven. Well, Dottie, Dottie is, she's, uh, you know, she she's kind of mystic, so she's got a, like more of a closer ear to the Almighty than I think the rest of the people here do. I guess. And so shit's then going to escalate again. Because <laughs> this escalates quickly. <laughs> we've got Killer Joe that makes an announcement that they are in love. They're in love. He has asked her to be his bride. They're going to leave right after dinner's over, start their new lives together. Chris is, he's having none of this. Yeah. He's and like, you can't take my sister. And they're going to fight about it. They're going to fight about it. There's a weird back and forth happening where Chris is like, Dottie, go get your stuff. We're going to leave. And Joe's like, Dottie, remain seated. And she kind of is up and down a whole lot. You can tell that she's getting frustrated. There's a, I, I do want to mention like during all the fighting earlier, I think it's a little bit before the chick, the chicken leg incident, we have a brief shot in Dottie's room and she's on her bed looking at this like angel doll that's on her shelf. And she says something along the lines of, that's it. I have to go. I have to leave. They're suffocating me. So Dottie's in a headspace where she's ready to be done with this in a big way. And even earlier in the film, she said, like, Chris is asking her, like, are you excited? Dottie says, I'm always excited. So long as no one makes me angry. Yeah. I'm like, don't make Dottie angry. Some, just don't. Don't make her angry. And they so do, eventually Chris brings out a gun that he had bought earlier. They run at him. He drops the gun. The gun flies over towards Dottie. And everyone, uh, Joe, Ansel, and Sharla are now doing everything they can to wrest Chris from this mortal coil. Joe is trying to cave in Chris's skull with a can of tomatoes. Sharla has, like, broken a bottle over Chris's head. Ansel hold is holding Chris's legs tight so that they can, you know, get at him a lot better. That's what trips Chris up at first, is that Sharla stabs him in the shoulder with a steak knife. So everyone wants him dead. Dottie is understandably upset and now has the gun and screams out, I'm getting angry! And then shoots the wall, shoots a lamp. Dottie looks at Chris, who is bloody and beaten to a near pulp, shoots him in the chest, points at her father, shoots Ansel in the chest. Charlotte immediately puts herself behind Ansel as a human shield. Yeah, we get this whole just bloodshed here. Yeah. I do love that at first you think that this horrific scene has just happened with Joe. Maybe Charlotte's not going to be on his side. Maybe Ansel's not going to be on his side. But no, they they go right for mm -hmm. holding Chris down so that he can beat him with a can of pumpkin puree. Is what oh, that's is, what it was. Okay. Thing. And Ansel even just yells out, I got him for you, Joe. <laughs> Kill, him. Him. Kill, Kill him. Kill him. And so this family is just, it's, it's a tight family. Yeah, you know, they they turn we, on each other super quick. We never hear this line in the movie, but in the play, there, it just has this line where Joe screams out, like, all caps, Die, motherfucker! Die! Die! Die, motherfucker! So we've got a lot of feelings. Um, yeah. yeah, Dottie's going to have to make this decision here between her brother and Joe mm. initially. And this is the culmination of sort of the control that both of them have exhibited over her throughout the narrative. We briefly touched on the slightly sexual undercurrent earlier, but we didn't really follow through with like where that kind of comes up. But it is sort of made clear that there is this 
unusual relationship between Dottie and Chris to the extent that Chris is a little bit possessive and jealous mm-hmm. slightly over Joe. Sure. There's also the little speech that Dottie gives during their tuna casserole date about how when her parents were divorcing, she had a reaction where she started yelling all this crazy stuff, and then Chris came out and just laid his body over hers on top of her until and she kind of mimics the position and she, until she stopped crying. And we never actually talked about that. This kind of <laughs> sexual yeah. moment between them, which also seems to be the impetus that really turns on Joe, because Joe's like, go get the dress. Yeah. Like that, that story <laughs> is like, now you really have to go put this on because I need to fuck you. So That's there's when sort my of brother weird... put his entire weight on my body and didn't move. Go get the dress. I'm turned on. Yeah, it's this taboo sort of line. I mean, it, it makes sense for Joe's sexuality in terms of the stories of her being kind of controlled or in some way these sort of taboo lines are seeing her as sexual. So she, it is surprising, at least it was surprising to me, that she did choose to shoot her brother because mm-hmm. there was this sort of bond between them. But she severs that bond. She severs a bond with her father. He made her, They made her angry. You don't make Dottie angry. Yeah, and then oh Joe is coming towards her, and <sighs> she announces yeah. that she's pregnant. She's oh. going to have a baby. And every time that I've, like I said, I watched this movie three times over, every single time, McConaughey's reaction just brings me to tears with laughter, where his his face like has been you know, contained anger or cold concentration this entire final scene. And then when he hears that Dottie is pregnant, his eyes are lighting up with pure joy. And he just looks at her and says, really? A baby? A baby? A baby? Cut to Dottie. Cut to the gun. Dottie's hand is on the gun. Her finger finger moves to the trigger. Cut back to Joe. Happy as can be. Blackout. Yeah. Credits. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> yeah. Really fun little jaunty song <laughs> on our outro. Stroking to the east and stroking to the way that they pay for that one song. They're like, we're going to use this song by God <laughs> as many times as we can. Is this a happy ending? No. Does this ending make me happy? Fuck yes, it does. Yeah, no, it's pretty great. And there's, of course, the ambiguity of whether or not. Dottie's gonna shoot Joe. It's surprising <laughs> how m- many split camps there are on whether she would pull the trigger or not. Yeah. What, is... what does she do in your mind? Does she pull the trigger or does she not pull the trigger? I think that she pulled the trigger. I think she continued her, her vengeance upon everyone in this house. What do you think? Oh, I think she definitely pulled the trigger, okay. which is why it surprised me that Friedkin thinks she would not have pulled the trigger. Really? In oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. But he also says that it's not up to him anymore. When a movie starts and when it ends, that is what he knows of the narrative. What happens before and what happens after is no longer something that he knows or fully thinks through because character actions always create a series of subsequent reactions that he cannot predict all the course of and so 
yeah, when it comes to any of his movies, there is no canon before or after because the story is the story. I really, I really respect that like almost stoic philosophy approach to storytelling that Freakin' seems to have. That's pretty badass. Yeah, it's interesting. This idea that like these characters are not mine. <laughs> I <laughs> came in, I swooped in, and I videoed some of their story, but <laughs> what they do before or after me, I could not say. Oh. Man. Yeah, it was, it was fun. So that was the great Jacobian uh, finale to, yes. to that, too. Uh, you may have a, a better grasp or be able to articulate the history a bit better than I can. Why do we call this a Jacobian ending, London? Okay, so the Jacobian era of playwriting came about during the rule of King James I. Which is a little after Shakespeare's time, if that gives you... Yeah, yeah it's the one that followed the Elizabethan era. Like, so we're talking like 1567 to 1625, I think are the dates that are oh, mostly okay. ascribed to the Jacobian era. And Jacobian play writing is known as just this strange mix of not really satire because they tend to be very amoral in the way that they're not trying to deliver any sort of morality play message, even though they feel a little morality play-ish. But they're well marked by just the gruesomeness, the taboo, and the vengeance cycle of stuff. And so almost all Jacobian plays sort of start with a general plot drive generally revolving something around vengeance and they end with just a mass slaughter <laughs> like most <laughs> of the guys are dead in the end in the way that we sort of think of hamlet but even Hamlet's hamlet a little bit more of a weighted tragedy whereas yeah. like the jacobian plays don't often have as much of a sense of dramatic or emotional tragedy because all of the people are generally so <laughs> not unlikable because a lot of them are fun in the way that the Killer Joe characters are that you're like, these are terrible people but they don't have to be redeemed one way or the other because they're incredibly entertaining and so the I fact that they just like slaughter each other in the end, it's just like it's a it's a fun bloodshed. I think that the uh, that, that movie Shakespeare in Love kind of articulates this transition a little bit. There's a bit part in that movie where there's a kid who Shakespeare has seen like hanging around the theater and he's like, well, what do you think of the plays, kid? Oh, I don't like them. They're, you know, they're goofy. There's too much talking. I want to write some plays. They're just going to be a bunch of stabbing and all sorts of stuff. Like, oh, yeah. What's your name? And I forget the, the name the kid gives, but it like it was this famous Jacobian playwright whose plays often were just bloody massacres uh, that were absolutely insane. Was it Thomas Middleton, maybe? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he did, like, Women Beware Women and all of these, like, really great just Jacobian clusterfucks that <laughs> ended in crazy bloodshed. I actually, just when I was in England a couple of months ago, I saw a stage production of Women Beware Women, and Brag. it was a fun adaptation, but I think I was one of the few members of the audience that were just, like, there for this play. <laughs> Most of the people are like, what the fuck am I watching right now? Because they set it in the 1980s, which was kind of fun. Like, it was a cool time period adaptation for a Jacobian play, because there's a lot of this sense of, like, 
decadence and this facade of peace, even though there's a lot of global unrest happening at the same time, and social climbing and whatnot. And it, yeah, it ended with just like everybody just like blood all over the stage and the floor. But at the same time, there's like these merrymakers that are like playing tambourines. And like, that's the Jacobian spirit. <laughs> Is that, like, everybody's going to die in, like, this quick flash of maybe, like, a two-minute runtime, and yet there might be, like, minstrels in the background, and that is Killer Joe, right, is that we get this (laughs) very quick climax where the vengeance is drawn out, but then this sort of rubber band snap reaction or consequence of this slow building vengeance is just that everybody's going to die. <laughs> it's going to be super bloody and the blood's going to be all over. Like it's not going to make sense <laughs> where the blood is, but it's going to oh. end up there and there's going to be something kind of fun about it. And that's also why this is just theatrical. Yes. And this, uh, I think anyone who watches this can kind of get a sense. If you understand plays and you understand the the rhythm of dialogue and plays, you kind of under, you would, you would get, oh, okay, yeah, this was originally a play that they've expanded. Uh, They've done this much better, I think, with this one than was done with Bug. But I think just because of the plotline of Bug, it had to be one location. And to give you a little background, uh, Bug was a 2006 film that was also directed by William Freakin and also based on a play written by Tracy Letts and who also came on board for the adaptation of that. And it's about a woman played by Ashley Judd who meets a man played by Michael Shannon. He's an odd duck a little bit. He helps her out through some tough times with an abusive boyfriend who, you know, is stalking her and helps her out a whole lot. And they they develop a bond. And then at one point in the play, he notices, like, oh, man, there's a bug in this bed. Like, oh, there's a bug in my skin. What? Really? There is? I I don't see anything. And this keeps going. He's like, oh, there's more bugs in here. The, the, The bugs are breeding. Um, okay. And as the play progresses, you begin to realize that Michael Shan's character may be someone who has gone off their medication because they progressively see more and more bugs and are scratching at themselves nonstop. Eventually, like, bloody sores open up on Michael Shannon's body throughout it. And Ashley Judd just believes that this is going on the entire time. We're never given a definitive answer on if Michael Shannon's character is crazy or if the conspiracy theories that he is spouting all the time he goes through like every conspiracy theory in the book he like mk ultra had to do with the moon landing being taped had to do with the germans killing jfk he just he's all over the place and but we're never like told diegetically is he right is he wrong Eventually, they are covering the entire motel room that they're in with tin foil, and they've got bug zappers lit everywhere, so there's all this, all this awesome blue light at the end. And at the end, they just burn themselves alive because they are now convinced they are breeding these yeah. evil bugs that will be nanomachines that will take over humanity. So it, it goes from Ashley Judd is, you know, works in a small town, has an abusive boyfriend, to Ashley Judd is now convinced by an insane person that she is the queen bug breeder and they must emulate all of them, emulate themselves in the entire room. Yeah, so Tracy Letts has a certain sensibility as a playwright <laughs> to the more very much so yeah. dregs kind of cracks of society. And William Friedkin is a huge Tracy Letts fanboy. I definitely got that from the commentary. He is a fan that thinks he's one of the best playwrights of the generation. 
Oh, the generation. Nice. Yeah. He came across Tracy Letts's bug play and called him up personally saying, hey, it's me, William Friedkin, the dude who did To Live and Die in L.A., <laughs> The Exorcist, The French Connection, cruising. Jade, huh? Jade, yeah. remember Jade? No. Okay. The Thin Blue Line, randomly. <laughs> and I want to make a movie out of your play. And Letts was like, wait, seriously? And Friedkin's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. And so... Must be nice to get that Yeah, call. so they did it. Then a little, a few years later, Let's calls up Friedkin and says, hey, you know how you're a fan of my work? Well, I wrote this <laughs> screenplay to my first play ever, Killer Joe. You want it? I added a scene that has a, that has a chase scene in it, and I thought of you. Yeah, so Friedkin's like, yeah, let's do this. And so, yeah, they worked on this one. And... It definitely sounds like a play. I think we sort of already mentioned all of that where you start to watch this movie and it just, everything about it feels like a stage play in the best possible way. Because I do think playwrights do make some of the best screenwriters because they're used to writing a contained narrative and they're used to really paying attention to language. They're definitely the easiest things to adapt to film, I find. Yeah, they just have a certain idea about the world and repetition and rhythm, so if you like just the writing component of a movie, like you, you want to go for some playwrights as your screenwriters. I think Tracy Letts, he definitely appreciates film in that it is the medium where he can he can do more that he couldn't do on stage. On stage, you couldn't get a close-up of, you know, handcuffs that McConaughey is putting on the counter and wondering, like, what the hell is that? Unless he, like, is very broadly taking them out of his pocket, holding them up high, letting them, you know, jingle around. But it would be an unnatural thing to do. Film allows you to get that you know, focus on a very natural moment and very subtle moments that just don't translate on stage very well. You know, you can't do subtle things in the person, like the second balcony. You know. Oh, you could do that, but you, you appreciate up. it more in close up. <laughs> but uh, I forget where I was even going with that. God damn you. Chicken leg blowjob. Feels like theater. Yep. Then it feels like Tracy Lutz and it um, feels like Friedkin. Oh, what I was going to say was that the the count to me, like the things that give away that this was originally a play is that it is very dialogue driven and that most of the time the dialogue doesn't relate too much to the scenes that they are in. They never comment on the fact that they've arrived at a strip club. There's no dialogue saying like, yeah, she's hot or anything like that. There are few a few extra bits like in the, the pizza parlor scene where Sharla gives a guy a pizza. He's like, I didn't. I asked for one with olives. And she says, I fire up a new Supreme. I'm taking my break. And so we have a little bit of like talk about the location, but it's very minimal. Mm-hmm. And Tracy Letts, I think, did a good job of adding those in very seamlessly to his uh, screenplay. Yeah, to just kind of flesh out the world. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. The entire thing just feels like a play. And it also feels like a Friedkin film at the same time. We've sort of pointed out along the ways as to why. But why these two men work together so well is that they are... So you're saying that Letts is an actor's playwright. And I'm saying that Friedkin is an actor's director. So <laughs> yes. what do you mean by Letts is an actor's playwright well let's himself start out as an actor and then on the side decide well i'm going to try and write some plays and see how that works out and his first play was this killer joe and worked out pretty well 
And when I say he is an actor's playwright, I feel that he is writing lines that deliver a good story, but at the same time, he knew that they would be fun to do as an actor. I think playwrights who have never done any acting themselves or never had much exposure to actors or the craft, they'll write very serious work and maybe something that can be, you know, good literature. But as a play, sometimes it's difficult to say. It's not very thrilling, no matter what kind of delivery you put behind it. But in this, in Tracy Letts' work, he's giving actors just good meaty dialogue to work with things that are so crazy that it's so fun to say and that actors good actors can elevate that and make them just astounding to listen to and that happens a lot in killer joe yeah it does and then for friedkin why he's an actor's director is that he really loves the process of collaboration and he really likes his actors to surprise him during a scene so he has talked about how that's often his most common directorial cue is to go to an actor and say okay in this scene surprise me (laughs) do whatever the (laughs) fuck you want and let's see what happens i could see that because when i was watching this movie with the play next to me going like reading along i did notice there were just differences in dialogue like i said phrasing was a little bit differently and the feel that i got from that was that freaking was okay with them rephrasing something just to make it sound a little bit more natural coming from them and I assume that, you know, Tracy Letts, he was getting the, the digital dailies for this. He was obviously cool with it. So mm-hmm. I just, again, I appreciate that they both writer and director understand the collaborative nature that is good film. Yeah, and the things that the actors brought to it in terms of McConaughey turning his back on her, Friedman's like, yeah, that's better. Let's do that. <laughs> it's just these little things. Although the other thing I learned from the commentary is that Friedkin will not do more than two takes when shooting a scene. Oh, wow. I read a little bit about that with Bug as well. Apparently, like, Ashley Judd had to beg him to do a third take sometimes. So he will often, sometimes up to a week before the shoot, he'll meet with his actors, they'll do the read-through, they'll answer and address questions, then he'll see, you know, what their ideas are then for the overall sort of idea of how the scene is going to go down. He'll still then say, you know, surprise me with whatever else you want, but he expects his actors to come to set not ready to warm up into a take. He does not believe in, like, the take is a rehearsal. He's like, no, this is where it's lit, it's <laughs> rolling. So it's also kind of almost like this stage idea where, like, we've had the rehearsals, stage play mentality the audience is here, you're being recorded, go. So most of the stuff in Killer Joe was the first take. Where there were two takes, it was because they wanted more angles to work Mm. with when cutting it together, but it was not for the sake of a second acting performance. (laughs) Friedkin also talks about how he really loves a little bit of imperfection in his scenes. He loves the idea of spontaneity over perfection. And so whatever authentically comes out of the actor in that moment, it's like, well, that's how it was done then. Like, moving on. McConaughey was the one who was taken aback the most by this because 
Gershon has done plays, so she was sort of used to when you're on, you're on. Right. right? Uh, McConaughey has not done a lot of theater, and in his interview, sort of talked about how he's usually a take five guy that he does usually warm into it, but nah. Not with Friedkin. I'm just a take five kind of guy, you know? And that it was kind of a fun experience to just have that go, go, go sort of feeling. Like, you need to be on. Um, and he expressed wanting to, to try that style again, but it's not common. Right? Usually you have these directors that do want everything script perfect and blocking perfect and lighting perfect, and so multiple takes will happen, but... There were a bunch of times where Friedkin even pointed out, so this scene's a little out of focus. This scene has a spider web across the top of the lens that filters in and out in this kind of weird mystical weaving light. It's like, these are the beautiful things that happen as an accident of cinema, and we leave them in. It's interesting. I remember noticing in the scene, the, di the dinner date scene, there's a shot of McConaughey where... It's in focus, then out of focus, then in focus again. And it's a very subtle shift. And I thought to myself, like, that almost kind of, it works in a weird way, but I don't know if that was intentional or not. And those are the kind of mistakes, it seems, that freaking is all about. Yeah. And there were a lot of things where, like, a cat will walk by the frame. Oh. And Friedkin's like, we didn't put a cat there. A cat just walked by the frame. Beautiful. <laughs> or when the freight train goes by, he's like, we didn't set up and just wait for a freight train oh, to go yeah. by. The freight train went by. That, and we're that like, was one of the little things I, I really like seeing because like, that just that sells me on like the, the, the small town outside of Dallas. Like, yeah, right there, man. Freight train going by. Daily occurrence. That There you go. Yeah, he just wanted to get the like the atmosphere around. Or they didn't stage a scene in the way that he's like, yeah, this mailbox was at this really cool angle. And we ended on it because this is like part of the environment. And we wanted to show the environment, but we didn't construct the environment. Yeah, he's got a cool, weird sensibility in terms of his little imperfections. But since he maintains that consistency with that ethos... He does have a certain kind of auteur allure going on there that that imperfection sort of becomes part of his aesthetic. And yeah, it's cool, especially since he's working with some really talented people that are helping all of this come together. So the cinematographer and the sound guy, like he tends to have these people that he works with consistently. He's also been around for so long. Well, yeah. This is a dude who was born in 1935. God damn, Bill. And this movie came out in the 2000s. Like, he's been yeah. directing for a very long time. <laughs> but what was fun with some of the crew that he had on this film is that he did bring people who had also been working in the industry for a while and mostly on really big budget productions. And how he pitched them initially was, okay, we want to just, like, break this down to just, like, the bare-bones basics. We want very natural lighting. We want some really subtle sound. And everybody was just so excited and on board with this to, like, strip <laughs> out the production. They're like, yeah, let's do it. So it's cool how it all came together with the subtlety. The fact that Killer Joe is an incredibly subtle movie in a lot of its production when you don't necessarily think of Killer Joe and the word subtle in the yeah. same sentence. <laughs> so that becomes really important. 
Uh, well, when I was looking at the crew on this thing, I don't know if it was the main cinematographer or what, but uh, the one of the main camera guys, or the, I think it was the main cinematographer, this was their first digital film, uh, a movie made with a digital camera, not a, you know, not, you know, 35 millimeter and all that. And it was also Freakin's first digital film. And that made me appreciate the look of this film so much more because it looks fantastic all the way around. Like the lighting is both motivated and very beautiful. There are so many scenes in that trailer where like during the dinner date scene, there's this blue light outside uh, seeping in, but there's this golden light on Joe's face that like separates him from the background very well. And just so many other moments like that are just really well done. And I think from aside from, you know, the aforementioned makeup being a little smeared because perhaps they were not thinking of how to apply makeup for digital cameras. This is a very surprisingly uh, gorgeous film for being the first foray for a lot of people into this new medium. Yeah. I mean, everything is lit in a certain way. Going back to that strip club, right? It's when they walk out of the strip club into the hallway and the blue is behind them and then they're naturally lit again. Yeah. It feels super, like really natural and it mm-hmm. it's surprising that it does right? <laughs> to be able to light something so that it looks like you're in an alleyway while this blue saturation is behind you. It actually takes a very skilled lighter to do that, and it's all in the subtlety. Like, you're not supposed to notice in that case that it you know, should be weird or whatever. Yo. So, yeah, the production in this is just subtly fantastic. Speaking of those people, then, top yeah. five? All right, here we go. Top five. Honorable mention to the chicken leg. Gotta give it up. That chicken leg. It held together. It, it came together. It, it showed up on set, and I think with minimal direction, it just it delivered. Uh, so props to that chicken leg. My number five. Number five, I will give up to Juno Temple, uh, who plays Dottie here. It's hard to really really say too much about her performance because like the interesting things about Dottie are what's written about her. But I, I think she was doing a lot of very cool, fun, creepy things here with Dottie. She also had the spot-on accent, yes, which is surprising because British. She's yeah, British. I think, uh, yeah, I didn't know too much about Juno Temple going in, so I didn't know about that. I saw like in trivia that uh, apparently the the gal who plays Mystique in the new X Men movies, Hunger Games. Why am I blanking on her name? Jennifer Lawrence. Yes, Jennifer Lawrence. Apparently, Jennifer Lawrence early in her career really wanted to play this role, which I cannot see at all working. That just is I weird. Yeah. Apparently in, 1990, in a 1998 off-Broadway production of this play, Dottie was played by Sarah Paulson, uh, which I really I have difficulty seeing Sarah Paulson uh, play this role. But, I, I mean, I won't take it away from her. Yeah, not a fan, so. <laughs> no, uh, no, really? You're not a fan of Sarah Paulson? <laughs> I... I couldn't tell you why. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? What's your problem with Sarah Paulson? She's a fine actor. No, she's fine. I, there's just... I don't know. There's something about... Maybe it's the characters that I've seen her play, but... Because <laughs> I've mostly just seen her in American Horror Story, and there's just something about her that annoys me. And it's not her fault. In the way that, like, Connie Britton kind of has the same effect on me, where I just, like, don't enjoy watching her do things... Do Not you, her fault. Do you think, London, and let's be real here, but do you think that maybe somewhere internally you blame Sarah Paulson for Studio 60 failing? 
it's possible. No, I just, I, I blame America for Studio 60 failing, to be honest. Whoa. I couldn't tell you. Maybe we edit this out because it's not fair to Sarah Paulson. Sorry, Sarah Paulson. Sorry, we didn't. We didn't know it would go this way. I didn't know it would go this way. I know that London was, she's a piece of shit, but I didn't know that she was going to rag on you. Sorry, Sarah no, Paulson. I, I have to like, it's something I definitely have to examine about myself, why certain people just bug me. But, and I also like love the fact that she's in a relationship with Holland Taylor. Like that actually endears her to me a lot more. Uh, okay. All right. Because that's a super cool May-December romance right there. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, London, what is your top five? Your number five, I should say. My honorable mention goes to pretty much the entire ensemble cast sure, because sure. they're all fucking great. Mm-hmm. Um, number five goes to to Friedkin. Okay. I like his work. I like that he was still directing movies like hundreds of years later after he started. <laughs> yeah, it just he lovingly adapted this. Um, I've already talked about why I like Friedkin, so... And indeed, and I mean that that makes my next thing short because my number four is freaking as well. Uh, I appreciate that a man who's been in the game as long as he has uh, is still able to adapt uh, in fun ways, like this being his first digital film, uh, working on this play with Tracy Letts, and like taking input from so many different areas and still making this movie his own. It just gives me so much more respect for the guy. And I, I just hope he's not an asshole in real life. I don't know much about the man's personal life. I just, I, I hope that there's not some horrible secret about him I don't know yet. I mean, I'm sure there probably is, but whatever. <laughs> Probably. Everyone's entitled probably, to their yeah. dark secrets. I'm going to regret this in a year Five. or two. Yeah, most likely, yes. So that's my number four. All right. And you're number four. Number four is going to go to Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, he all just... right, all right. Had to say Yeah, there are point. moments where when he, like, applies himself, he just brings it. Like, when he wants to bring it, he can bring it. Mm-hmm. I guess initially when he got this screenplay, he initially said fuck no because he read it and he was horrified by the material and yeah he hadn't done a lot of like the grittier stuff yet he was mostly known for romantic comedies uh yeah i was gonna say like charting his career this is like you know he, he was doing movies with kate hudson at this point in his career so this was a huge departure for him yeah this is kind of the beginning of the reconnaissance <laughs> and so when he got the script yeah and initially refused it Friedkin really wanted him because he'd seen him in interviews and thought he had this great, charming charisma, that he was classically attractive and could pull off this storyline romance with a much younger woman and the audience would be fine with it because enough of them from the rom-coms already wanted to fuck him anyway. He's like, he also has the accent, like he's from this area. Some of McConaughey's friends read the script and were like, nah, dude, this is hilarious. You should read it again. <laughs> and so McConaughey's got some good friends. Good for him. McConaughey said that he went back and reread the script, and that was when he really started to notice the rhythm and the cadence and sort of, yeah, the beats of what was going on here. So he's like, all right, no, I, I do think I kind of get this. I'm going to trust the people around me. And yeah, he was the one that was the most reluctant to do it initially. Whereas apparently Emil Hirsch read this and was like, I get this guy. Let's do it. And Church read it. And he's like, yeah, I've, I know people like this. I'm in. And Gina Gershon was on board from the beginning. So everybody and Juno Temple somehow got a hold of the script. Friedkin had no idea how this 
random British actress had gotten a hold of the script, but she sent in her audition tape to him with her 10-year-old brother reading the Killer Joe lines, and she was delivering the uh, the Dottie lines, and she had this perfect Texas accent, and so when he met her and it turned out she was British, he was completely blown away by this. <laughs> so, yeah, McConaughey gives a, a great, great performance. He is Killer Joe. He embodies All it. right. My number three is going to go to THC himself, Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, like I said, this is his casting in this is just so awesome to me. I absolutely love everything he does here. Uh, I, I just really enjoy Thomas Hayden Church in most things that he does. I remember watching him like on Wings when I was a kid. I uh, loved him like in Sideways. Uh, I think he deserved a better deal with Spider-Man 3. You know, I Spider-Man 3, uh, I think the story goes that Sandman was supposed to be the main villain, but then the studio was like, no, put Venom in there too. And that became the movie that it was, neither here nor there. But watching him in this was just so great because uh, it sounds like I'm just like going to rag on Emile Hirsch a lot here. But like I said, Emile Hirsch is just loud all the time, whereas Thomas Hayden Church is like going for a very much a less is more approach to this performance where he he just says so much with a look and just very quietly going, no, what do you think, Ansel? I don't. I love that approach to acting. I love uh, when it's done really well. And yeah, everything he does in this is just so great to me. So that's why uh, Thomas Hayden Church, number three for me. All right, number three, Gina Gershon. Mm, she commits right. and she succeeds. Yeah, as she do in life all the time. Number two for you. Well, that's, we're kind of like staggering, it seems here, because yeah, my number two is Gina Gershon as well. For many of the same reasons that you have, uh, I love how fearless uh, she is when it comes to stuff like this. Uh, I love how how just awesome she looks uh, throughout all of this. I think like some of these compliments go more to the makeup department than anything else. But like that last scene when she's coming from the rain and she has about like five different makeup jobs done on her face, it seems like where all the eyeliner has run and just smeared her, like given her almost raccoon eyes throughout that entire scene. Yeah, girl uh, needs some waterproof mascara. She really does. They don't have much of that in uh, outside of Dallas. Especially how much it rains here in this Texas uh, yeah. area. <laughs> this Texas town known for its rain. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, number two is definitely Junior Krishan just rocking it in this thing. We're number two, the sound designer and mixer. There's kind of a team of them, so I'm just going to say, like, the sound department, because I don't know who fully did what on this, but whoever did the sound on this movie, it's subtle, but it is the film. From the carryover from each scene, to the atmospheric room sounds, to the crunching that happens when impact goes, the click of the lighter, like, there's a spatial mapping that's happening throughout with the sound in a way that not a lot of movies actually do. Like, I haven't paid attention to sound so much during a film since, like, Blowout and The Conversation. Mm. And so there's this return to 70s sound mixing that I just find really satisfying, especially in a 2000s digital film. Right on. Who's your number one? I think we have the same one, maybe. Um... No, my number one you've already stated is Matthew McConaughey. Oh, okay. Um, I, I mean, he's my number one for many of the reasons that you mentioned earlier. Uh, I have a lot of respect for actors who 
for movie stars in particular, which is weird to say, like, I have a lot of respect for movie stars. You know, movie stars can get by without my respect, obviously. But I do appreciate when uh, established movie stars like McConaughey was throughout the, you know, 2000s and early, you know, teens. He kind of, he very clearly had a niche of movies that he was doing. Like those romantic comedies with, I've already forgotten her name for some, Kate Hudson. Those romantic comedies he did with Kate Hudson, other like kind of safe mom movies that he was, you know, doing. To do this movie around the same time that he was doing that is a bold fucking move. And I guess it's more of a bold move to trust your friends who tell you that the script is awesome. But, you know, this was, as you called it, the start of the reconnaissance, that's the word right there. Um, and he did, you know, his career just began to really change it up after this, uh, you know, culminating in the greatest role he's had his whole life, which is obviously in Serenity, as we all know. <laughs> just fishing for that tuna. <laughs> so respect for the possible career change. And honestly, you know, moves like this can really fuck up careers uh, for actors if they have like if they're established stars in a very certain genre. So to go outside that is a very brave thing to do. And to go as crazy as he did with the, the choices he was making here are all awesome. So I respect him just on the level of taking a brave performance and taking a, a bold career move. So, you know, two thumbs up to McConaughey for the McConaughey. Why can't I say it? McConaughey. Because you fail fundamentally <laughs> as a person. Because I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's the mcconaughey sans. Nope, it's the mcconaughey This is not oh, my whatever. word. This is like a pop cultural psychester. <laughs> well, pop culture is wrong, okay? Number one, really, is Tracy Letts. Because... Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. This script is fucking fantastic. True. The language is fucking fantastic. The sensibility, the characters, everything that this movie is really comes to us through the mind of Tracy Letts. So, Tracy, thank you for your worldview on suburban Dallas. It's fucking great. <laughs> Although, I guess what I did learn from an interview with Tracy was that this play was initially inspired by a newspaper article he had read about a real-life event that had happened with a family and their intentions to murder another family member for the insurance money or whatever down in Florida. So oh, wow. The spark of an idea here is a true story of the Floridian variety instead of the Texas variety. So it's curious that he decided to relocate it from Florida to Texas. I'm not sure if Tracy Letts just has more experience with Texas than Florida or what, but hmm. it's a thing. All right. Well, that's our top five. Yes, it is. Cruelty rating. Not very high for me anyway. Um <laughs> This was a very fun move to sit through, and I think that I can't give it a high one. I'll say, like, you know, one or two, really, for me, because it was just a joy to watch it every single time. Like, I've seen it once, you know, the once with you, and three times over now uh, for the sake of this, and every single time I was never bored, never annoyed at decisions made or anything like that, aside from a few nitpicky things, but... Really, after at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. So, fuck, yeah, one or two. I can't. There's not not cruel at all. Yeah, no, me too. 
I do not understand why this got an NC-17 rating. That is definitely the weirdest thing about it, yeah. Uh, Friedkin doesn't understand either. As we mentioned, he did try. Uh, he participated in trying to make some cuts, resubmitting it to the MPAA, and they were like, nah, NC-17. And so he's like, fuck it then, I'm going to put those cuts back in because if it doesn't make a difference to you then we're gonna go with the full cut and i don't know what it would be because he does go on at length in the commentary that he's confused that there are definitely movies that are more sexual and more violent that get our ratings so it's kind of a mystery the chicken blowjob scene it's up close, it's quote-unquote graphic, but it is also her just deep-throating a chicken leg, so I don't know, there's not really yeah. precedent for whether or not that's NC-17 material, but it seems like that shouldn't be the deal-breaker. There's blood, but there's lots of blood in places, so I <laughs> don't know. They quote from him on, on the whole thing that I agree with him, but I'm also like, what? Is uh, where he, it, apparently he said it at some point, Cutting would not have made it mass appeal. Cutting it would have been the equivalent of what members of the United States government and military leaders said about the Vietnam War. They said, we have to destroy Vietnam in order to save it. And that's what I would have done to Killer Joe. To get an R rating, I would have had to destroy it in order to save it, and I wasn't interested in doing that. Now, I agree on why you don't want to cut your film, but comparing it to the whole Vietnam thing is flirting with hyperbole a little bit there. Maybe just a little, you know, but at the same time, <laughs> I guess the extent to which he would have needed to make the cuts, since even the cuts he was trying to initially make weren't going to fly, and most of us are still confused as to why it's NC-17. Yeah, he probably yeah. would have had to destroy the movie by just taking out the whole, everything. The whole thing. Like, I don't know. The whole... Yeah. Yeah, the whole the whole ending scene that makes it worth it so much, I think, would have had to been, had to have been cut. I guess again, even as it is, I don't really understand why it's NC seventeen. Though at the same time, when I started playing this on Hulu, there was something kind of satisfying about seeing that rating come up. That's true. That like Hulu goes there. The other one little fun thing about why I watch this movie on Hulu each time, and every single time the movie ended, the next thing it suggested I watch was some movie called Hector and the Search for Happiness. Aw, is that an ironic title, or...? I guess, like, Hulu, do you think I'm in a foul mood now because of Killer Joe? Because I am elated. <laughs> I, uh, Every time that movie finishes, I'm just like, I'm happy that I live in a world where this film exists. I am too, and now I'm curious what in the world this happiness movie is. Something with Simon Pegg. Okay, yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll look that up separately. Because for the moment... I'm kind of hungry, and I think I might need to go get some food, <laughs> although I don't know. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's something a little bit gross about thinking about <laughs> eating chicken. I don't know. Go ahead. So perhaps, uh, even though I never thought I would say it in my life, perhaps I should try something vegan. <laughs> never thought vegan would be a safe space. No, actually, vegans are fine.
I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!